that's when George winds up finding me, he knocks on my door, I open the door and he goes, Timmy, dude, he says, I said, George, what the fuck, man? He says, man, we got work to do. He says, the shit's backing up. Can you do this? And I just went, yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> you know, because I didn't give it a second thought, you know, because we were actually the infrastructure, all of us younger guys. So you just went from like prime deckhand to godfather. I went right on to and making the deals with some Cubans in Miami. And now I'm the guy that's flying to Colombia and to Jamaica, to Central America. What's cooking, everybody? I am joined in the bunker today by my friend, Mr. Tim McBride, and whoa, is this a life story if I've ever heard one. Tim is the author of the book Saltwater Cowboy, which I would highly recommend. It's phenomenal. It's in the Amazon bookstore and wherever you get your books. And that is because Tim, when he was younger, this is now 35 years ago, Tim was one of the biggest pot smugglers in the history of the United States of America. He was down in a very remote place called Chukaluski Island that you're going to hear about in Florida. You're going to hear about how it all went down and how he got involved with it, which is crazy in and of itself. And they lived in a different world. I'll, I'll just put – there's no real way for me to put this. I mean the guy explained a lot of it today, and I got a little surprised because he was here for I guess like almost five hours. So this is going to be two podcasts. You're going to get the first part today, and you're going to get the next part I believe next week is when I'm going to put it out because – Essentially, not that we could have planned this, but it just worked out beautifully where the second half was kind of like his whole how he went down in the aftermath. So you can watch that without hearing the first half really at all. And the first half goes through how this all went down and what he was doing and the whole story with Chuck Olusky. It's absolutely wild. I was thoroughly entertained the entire time, and I'm sure you guys will be too. So I hope you enjoy. Now, if you are on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. Please hit that like button on the video. And as always, we'd love to hear from you down in the comments section as well. To all of you who have been sharing these episodes with friends, sharing the link, sharing it on social media, even just in text with your friends and things like that, like people who would enjoy the podcast. Thank you so much. We got to keep that rolling. That's really what grows this show. I often get people to reach out like, yo, why does your long form not get seen in my feed? Or why do I not hear about it as much? Or why doesn't it get the views you get on shorts? It's because you YouTube measures this channel as a shorts channel. It is a problem that all shorts creators have, and so they do not really put my long-form content in a lot of feeds. And that's just that's an algorithmic thing that they're trying to figure it out. So while that's happening, the best way to get around that is to share the content. I'm probably going to say this and repeat this over a few episodes and then sporadically so that people kind of remember. But spreading it around with friends, actually watching the episode if you come here to view it on YouTube so that it, it gets the proper watch time and things like that, that's huge. And I would really, really appreciate it if we kept that ball rolling and kept getting the word out because that's how we're going to grow this thing and actually take it to the next level. So once again, thank you to everyone who's been doing that. If you you're on Apple or Spotify, same deal, share it around with friends. Thank you for checking out the show over there. And if you have a second, would love to see you leave a five-star review on either one of those platforms. And of course, make sure you're following. And other than that, you know what it is. I'm Julian Dory, and this is Trendify. This is one of the great questions in our culture. Where is the new Everyone understands this, but few seem to do it. If you don't like the status quo, start asking questions. John just became one of my dearest friends, you know, and, and when we started to do that, you know, pre 
production on that Viceland video, which was actually an hour-long documentary that they, they aired, but they only put nine minutes and like 38 seconds of it online. Yeah, I wonder how they do that, because it's like... They have all these different series. That's the one thing, like, it confuses me sometimes. Like, they have the drug series, then they got, like, a regular crime series, and then they have stuff that's, like, 45 minutes, and they have stuff that's 10. But right. I see one like yours, and I'm like, I want more of that. Right. Well, that video, when they put it online, it had, in, within the first 24 hours, 1.1 million views. I'll bet it did. And it was now great. It's, it's gotten as far as Australia, New Zealand, and the Philippines. I've got fans in the Philippines that are buying my book. Wow. You know, and I get them, you know, trying to DM me and shit all the time. Who approached you to do that? Um, one of the producers for Viceland. They How were, did they find out about you? They the book? Just, they just, yeah, looked me up. And wow. I was all over the place at that time, you know. And they said, well, we've got to get this guy's story. And, <laughs> and I talked to John one day, you know, we, you, you know, I said, do you happen to by chance know any of your old buddies that were involved in this thing that might want to come, you know, be a part of this? And he said, mm. I know the two perfect guys. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll call them John and John. John so you were like casting the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So he says, these two guys, they love to talk about themselves, man. And I'm like, oh, cool. So I wound up being, you know, John, John A come from the CIA to run interdiction vessels for customs. He swapped out of CAA and came to U.S. Customs to run interdiction oh, vessels. Oh, that guy, the guy you were just showing me who was in that. John. Yes, the guy, his the arresting buddies, agent. Yeah. He, John, the guy I showed you the picture of, he was uh, he was a colonel in, in the Army. Uh, he was a ranger. Badass and, motherfucker. And then he was CIA and then Customs? No, 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 no. The two guys he introduced me to. Oh, I got you. Ron and Ron. We'll call them Ron A mm -hmm. and Ron B. Okay. All too many Johns. Okay. Yeah, a lot Sorry. of Johns. Yeah, I confused you on that yeah. one. And um, and uh, so John John A came from CIA and to run interdiction vessels. He wanted to learn how to do that. Well, and then Ron B came from uh, um, Secret Service under the Carter administration. He wanted to come down and run interdiction. So those two guys actually chased me for six years before John arrived on the scene. This all, guy, all when you're a kid, too. and he introduced him to me. Yeah, you know. So we're having this chat, we're talking, you know, having a lunch, and I'm telling what's up and this and that kind of shit like that, you know, and and uh, we just, you know, wound up being just, you know, close friends after that shit because it, it wound up, because of who we are and how we operated and what we did, you know, ultimately just a bunch of kids that were family-oriented, and we, we grew up in this industry as generational. Yeah. There was no guns. Never once did I ever see anybody handle a gun. Yeah, ever. this is a way different. People are going to be very surprised to hear how simple this was. It's one of the things that endears most people to the story and allows them to relax and say, oh, yeah, I kind of like to hear about this because it's not that typical gangster gun play cocaine. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
right. cowboy shit. Louisa, shout out. <laughs> and, and most people would say, you know, they asked me about, you know, um, they have this image in their mind, this, this confused image of a, of a dimly lit, smoky back room somewhere in Miami and guns on oh, the table yeah. and we're making these deals. Dude, nothing could be further from the truth. I'm making $100 million deals standing out on a street corner, you know, in front of a Cuban cafe, dunking Cuban bread and coffee. And have a handshake. That's just how it was Or literally done. just sitting on a boat. <laughs> I mean, like, that's just how it was done. This is nuts, man. But, but And by the way, when, when Vice comes down and does that, I've always wondered this. How big is the crew for a feature like it that? It was a producer, a sound man, and a, and a cameraman. That's that was simple. It. Wow. It was that. It was it. They do such a good job and with that content. they followed us around. They went, up there, they went up the stream with my buddy Tommy and I. And yeah. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. And they just, they just let you they guys roll? They shot for three days and they just... Do they tell you what they want you to do? Well, or? they kind of prompted a little bit, as producers do. You know, they'll pull out a, typical, a particular storyline and, and the flow of how they want things to progress. But right. not knowing the story as intimately as as they could have, there's not so much. There's not too much pulling me along as they, as, you know, as as they would think. Because, you know, like I, I'm fond of saying, there's no real quick answer to any one question. I've got to give me a. I've got to give you a bit of a preamble and prelude to that answering of the question. Otherwise, it's, you're, you're you're just not going to get it. Well, that's kind of yeah. also like a great way to describe the beginning of your book too. Because I, I got to tell you, man, that's one of the best hooks I've ever seen in a prologue, right there. Right. So this was, I guess, somewhere from the middle of the book, you had a story of when you would be out on the boat and go meet up with like an industrial vessel where the weed was and this one particular time you went there what was going on with the cows yeah well um like you said i've been pot hauling for some time now <laughs> and i had thought we had seen this shit coming in every way possible we could see it coming it would come in shrimp boats it would come in yachts it would come in freighters and i've unloaded you know i've helped unload freighters that had as much as two three hundred thousand pounds on them are we talking like freighters that would pull into like 400 400 foot freighters wow you know with huge hulls holds in them man yeah you know you could put 300 you know put 150 tons in these fucking things and you know it would take us two three nights to unload these you know and and three or four boats working our everglades crew there were five crews in, in those days there was Everglades City crew. There was a Goodland, which is the next island up. I had a crew. Marco Island, which is the next island up, had a crew. That's Bougieville. And then Naples, and then Pine Island, just north of Naples, had a crew. So mm. five crews working. And we were unloading this shit. All five crews working because they were parked out there like a parking lot, man. I and mean, how we, far out are we talking? Like 60, 80 30 miles? miles. Not that. That's not that far. As close as we could get them, the better off we were because then yeah. we could get it in and get it get it in the house and get it shut up b- before the sun come up. That's the whole key to the whole thing. And this is all in the Gulf. This is all in the Gulf. All off this. All off of these islands right here. Because you know we're making it through the pass to Chukaluski back in here, and we're making our own way through here. I'm gonna stick a map in the corner so people can see what we're talking about, and then maybe I'll put some pictures as right. well, just so they can see the terrain. But, but visual of this gives you a pretty good indication yeah. as to what it was the government and everybody was dealing with. This was our backyard. Yeah, like you know. you know what it made me think of. You ever seen the movie or not the movie? The show True Detective. I don't think it was. So. It was the first season was unreal. It was Matt McConaughey and and, and Woody Harrelson, but it takes place in Louisiana. And Louisiana is basically like a character 
in in the show because they have they have the lands they show how like there's all these backwoods and back creeks and stuff and these people know where these places are and it's like it throws people off it right. throws people on the trail off all the time and right. when i was looking at this i'm like this especially like you know when when you're watching the vice documentary too and they literally have you going in a little boat back there i'm like right. there's there's such an advantage if you're on your home territory here. You, I'm just thinking of like some asshole customs agent. Like, what the fuck? Where'd they go? <laughs> we were taking them up the river. Um, uh, there was a section that we had as kids. We were we were instructed by the adults to carve out through the mangroves this this waterway that went from um, a little grouping of houses and trailers and stuff on a on a little island called Plantation was right there in Everglades City. Mm. And the Barren River was right next to it. And everybody, you know, had golf access. But to get to Turner River, which is about another mile over that goes all the way out to Highway 41, gets, albeit it gets very shallow, but we had carved out this waterway that nobody knew about. And we called it um, 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 Halfway Creek. Mm. And it was always somebody's job to go in there with chainsaws or whatever and, you know, keep the overgrowth from closing it in, you know. Your own little Panama Canal. And if there was a house on Pine, on, on Plantation Island, and we had at one time there was every house on the Chukaluskia Island and Plantation was full pot. <laughs> and we had to unload one of them because we're going to refill it that afternoon or that night, you know. So we have to take it and, and shovel it through up to Turner River and and put it in the woods and then put it on a truck and send it right out 41, right? You know, instead we'll go, of coming we'll, to town. We'll get to, I want to walk through all this, but, but that, um, but not to get you off. Cause I, I was asking how far out it was that first part though, this, this one boat, maybe this is like two, three years into doing it. They got cows on there and right. what were they doing with them? Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I'm just riding that out in the wheelhouse on the bunk, just kicking back and, and captain Billy. And, you know, the, the typical scenario is, um, to, to approach the boat, give it a call sign. Every boat has this particular call sign, so they know that the boat coming to it is the one that should be. Right. In this case, it was Felipe, Felipe, Felipe Zorro. Now, are you doing? You're doing that on the radio, right? Right on, uh, right on the radio. Okay. Yep. Felipe, Felipe, Felipe Zorro. And you guys weren't worried about someone listening in, wondering Didn't if matter, it's code because it was just a call sign. Right. Okay. You know, um, and it was done over the VHF, which was an open channel. You know, anybody you know could be on that channel. Um, and we get that communication back as a confirmation to the boat, so they know that we're coming. You know, typically, three, two, three hours, four hours before the sun goes down, we'll try to approach a boat like that, depending on the size of the load. So we have some daylight to work with. Mm. Get our load onto our boat and start heading ass back into shore because this boat now is is you know you got thirty thousand pounds, forty thousand pounds on this damn thing. It's barely moving. All weed, all packed away. All, and it's it's. I mean, there's no hiding this shit. Right. And if you were to fly over it and get a look at it, the boat You're from done. above, yeah. all you could see was the radar turning and a big pile of yeah. weed with a radar sticking out of it. <laughs> what it looked like. <laughs> Couldn't even see the boat. And um, and that's um, and we would make our way into shore. And those, you know, it, it doesn't seem like a long, uh, 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 that far of a distance, but when you're only moving two, three knots, because this thing's like, yeah, the whole boat's being dragged down. You got I this mean, huge turbo twelve cylinder. Uh, Detroit diesel engine that's hauling this load and it's turning a prop, you know, a brass wheel that, that weighs about 700 pounds and it's yeah. mucking this shit through the water. We bring this out there. So we're doing that approach. He calls the boat and we're going to make an approach to it. And he, and I'm standing there looking out the wind like this and Billy 
captain hands me the binoculars. He goes, watch this, dude. He says, you're not going to believe what you're about to see. <laughs> I get the binoculars up, and I'm looking, and all of a sudden we start. We get about a mile from this thing, and, and it's a you know, pretty good-sized vessel. And there's cows on this, cattle on the, on the weather many, deck. How many cattle? I don't know. There must have been 100? 150, 200. <sighs> Easy. You know, so all of a sudden the, the, the tailgates open up on this thing, like, you know, the, the corral opens yep. up. And these guys are cattle prodding these fucking things off the back of the boat. <laughs> and it's like a bovine waterfall. These things are just splash, splash, splash in the water. And, you know, and cows don't fucking swim, man. Did they just <laughs> sink like a rock? <laughs> Oh no, they're just, you know, turning the eyes around oh and shit. You know, and we pull up there, and we're kind of making our way slowly through these things. You're just navigating around the fucking we're cows. We're trying to get up to the boat because they're floating everywhere. <laughs> oh, my God. Were you trying to save any? <laughs> Fuck no. What are you going to do? <laughs> you know, so, and we're like. What the fuck is going on? You know, this was news to us. You know, like and I the said, cows are just mooing and going fucking down below the surface. Yeah, and they're all bobbing down the below, and they come up and down below, and you know, and that's got to be like fucking traumatizing to watch, dude. We look up to this fucking captain, and you know, and and he's leaning against the railing. He looks down at us, and we, I yelled up there, and I said, "What the fuck are you doing?" Holy shit! And he's peeling an orange. He goes, "Just you know." No worries, Chico. He goes, yeah, no, he goes, he goes, you know, we got all this shit down below. He says, we can't get it up here with all these cows in the way. Oh, my God. <laughs> so they run them off the back of the boat. Why the fuck were there cows on the boat? I love getting messages from people who have just recently purchased the 8 Sleep Pod Pro Cover because they are always so excited about it right away because the product's incredible. The 8 Sleep Pod Pro Cover comes in queen or king sizes. It goes right on top of your current mattress, and it is wired directly into 8 Sleep's proprietary app, which measures all kinds of stuff throughout the night to make sure that you sleep the best way possible, and the sleep is optimized around you. It measures things like your sleep stages, your BPM, how many times you toss and turn throughout the night, the temperature where you seem to prefer falling asleep, stuff like It's just wild. There's so many tools on it, and it actually makes the experience incredible, and you will wake up in the morning after sleeping six hours and feel like you slept eight. That's my line. I love it. I always use it. Anyway, if you use the link in my description, along with the code TRENDIFIER at checkout, that's T-R-E-N-D-I-F-I-E-R, you will get $150 off your own 8 Sleep Pod Pro cover today, and you will understand exactly what I'm talking about right away. So use that code TRENDIFIER. Once again, that's T-R-E-N-D-I-F-I-E-R, and you will get $150 off your own 8 Sleep Pod Pro cover. Go check it out for an excuse to be well, on the boat <laughs> like i said i've seen it come in many different size shapes of vessels that there is and this guy happened to be his business was buying cattle in south america reselling them on the market in, in new orleans selling those ones <laughs> and they approached him one day and said look would you you know hey well you're talking about you know three four hundred thousand bucks for an eight-day trip yeah you can yeah fuck yeah so Kill stuff it all down below throw the cows on there you know nobody would ever know you know who cares nobody that's a cattle vessel like that so when it got to us fuck them cows man they were you know fuck them cows. <laughs> what they were making us worth more than the goddamn cows on the boat right wait this doesn't still happen today right There's no no, way. Okay. no all right just... pita stand down stand down we got it we're good those cows are gone it's sad this but... was a unique a unique environment in which you know nobody else could operate like this anywhere in the world because they don't have this yeah to work with Again, you're pointing at the like I'm the actual at like the, terrain the, here. The ten thousand islands is what that's called, and it's literally ten thousand islands. Like what you see here is a fraction of it. There's twenty five miles of coastline that looks like this. 
Mm. That's two miles deep. Well, Tim, I want to start at the beginning then. Now we got a little preview of what's to come. This reading your book, obviously, when it opened up with the whole cow thing, I was like, oh, fuck, I'm in now. Like, now I'm going to sit here and read this goddamn thing. I don't have time to do this right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. But your, your upbringing, I thought, was all in pretty much in the Midwest. Right. No? Yeah. There was really. So you weren't from Florida. No. I was I was raised born and raised uh, primarily in North Carolina. My father was 82nd Airborne out of Fayetteville, mm. um, Fort Bragg, and um, he took a sales job that landed us between Milwaukee and Chicago because he could work both areas, and that consequently was a little town called Delavan in Wisconsin, ne- next to next to Lake Geneva, which mm. is a lot, of, which is a pretty well known tourist tourist spot for people in Chicago, and. Um, I had uh, did my high school years there, and that's when I got done working with Sammy Davis Jr. For those couple of years, I came back home, and that's when my next door neighbor called me and said, "Hey, dude, my brother-in-law owns a fish house on, the, on this little island down in Everglades. I'm going to go work with my sister and my brother-in-law on a, on a fishing boat. You want to go?" <laughs> Before we get there, though, how did you end up with Sammy Davis Jr.? <clears throat> What's going on there? Well, like the legend, he's on that picture, by the way, right behind you. <laughs> See him down there? Oh, the Rat Pack. That's it. Yeah, man. Yeah, I know all those guys. <laughs> oh my God! How'd that I, uh, happen? My cousin Joey in Ohio and his and his best friend drove Sammy's tour bus. Oh wow! And I was there, you know, over a hol- over a holiday, kind of visiting and recuperating from a little operation that I had had, you know. And he said, "Why don't you come out to L.A. and hang out with us and recuperate a little bit?" So I went out there and I met Richard Wayman, the guy that they lived with in this apartment that Sammy kept for them. Richard Wayman was his financial advisor. Mm. So I got to know Richard, and he liked me, you know, and shit like that. So he offered me a job to come back and, you know, be Sammy's personal videographer, videotaper. He liked to, because of the Broadway shows and the touring and st- stuff that he was doing, and so busy involved in the, in the entertainment industry that he wanted to watch television without commercials in it. <laughs> so my job was to literally take a TV guide from him every week that he just went through and checked off what he wanted to see. Oh, he would get the guide. And then I'd give him a new guide for the next week, and then I would take that week ahead and tape everything that he – and edit commercials out of it. So that our, was your job. My apartment was three different styles of videotape at that time. That uh, uh, There was the three-quarter inch Betamax, which was a big giant bugger like this, and then VHS, which was just coming onto the scene at that time. Um, and I would transpose them. from. And if I didn't want to sit and actually watch it, I could take off with my buddy Sean and go through Topanga Canyon. Because we were in the valley. I was in Encino. Mm. I had to go over the hills and in, in, um, down Highland Avenue into Hollywood, across, across uh, Sunset on Highland Avenue. It was the uh, 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 Video Duplication Inc., it, call, it was called. Richard owned a side business that was taking um, – first-run motion pictures from the big motion picture houses at that time, Columbia United Artists, Paramount, and, and such, and transferring it from the cellulose film reels to VHS tapes in this mm. building. And he had, you know, besides doing the daily taping for Sammy, he had, had a list of all these new movies that he had coming out that he was taping that he was only privy to. This shit has, wasn't coming out for like three months. Oh, wow. So then he had a list of celebrities around Brentwood, Hollywood, you know, in, in North, West Hollywood and the Hills that would give him the, them a list and they'd check off one they wanted to see. And I would make a copy for them and drive around in LA and deliver these <laughs> things to them, you know, and personally give Sammy his videotapes and then take another TV guide. And, and if I, like I said, if I wasn't watching this shit, you know, Topanga Canyon, I'd go right through Topanga Canyon to Topanga Beach, which was just between 
was between um, um, Santa Monica and Malibu. Right. North of, Mal- Mal- North of Malibu is, Ven- is uh, Zuma Beach. It's funny how I like vaguely know that map because so many people have told me, I still have never been. Like when people describe this, I'm like, I've seen the Google images. <laughs> yeah. We'd go out there, just throw the Frisbee all afternoon and the shit would just record. And then I'd go back and transfer it from one machine to the other and edit the commercials out of it as it was going along. How much How much you making an hour? I was making, I think I made $225 a week. All right. Well, back then that wasn't... That was, well, this was in 78. Pretty good. Yeah. Pretty damn good money in those days. Hanging dude. out with I Sammy had, Davis? I didn't have to pay rent. I didn't have to pay for food. I got a, you know, I had a car, a rental car that was given to me. Oh, so they gave you all this stuff. All this shit. We were talking Sammy, dude. You had, you got like a lot of crazy little opportunities <laughs> in your life. I'll tell you. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, every now and then I, I let out that, you know, the story that I tell sometimes is, is, is a bit of a Forrest Gump tale. You know, a I little just bit. trip from one thing to another, for, to another, to another. I had another guy like that in here. We called it that. It was and, like the uh, real life course. That's a whole, there's a couple hours of story just about LA and Hollywood and those people, you know, but, um, after were you a couple, friends with any, with any prominent people out there? Yeah. Yeah. Like a Sammy and his wife at the time, Aldavis was his wife and his two kids. And I wound up um, taking one of his younger kids to a place called Magic Mountain in L.A. It was a theme park. Huh. And his bodyguard took us and I took him to Magic Mountain <laughs> and shit, you know. And I knew um, at that time there was a, an, an, a retired NFL player by the name of Rosie Greer, Roosevelt Greer. He was on the list of people I was making videos right. for. Um, Milton Burrell. Comedian, that old, name, old time comedian. That name does sound familiar. He's he, this is going way back now. These are old yeah. timers, man. These yeah. are these are Hollywood royal, royalty. And I was making copies for these people, and they'd invite me in, and I'm talking, you know, blah blah, blah bullshit, and then I'd leave, you know, and sit like that. And I ran to um, one day going to Topanga. We're driving through Topanga with my buddy Sean to to throw the frisbee, and you run across movie making all over the place, you know. And we're driving through the to the canyon, and we see this, the lights set up in the cameras and all these cars parked on the side of the road. And I said, cool, they're making a movie, dude. Let's look. And I got my my cutoff jeans on. That's it. And Sean, him, yeah. him too. And he says, what do you mean, dude? What, wait, whoa. I said, well, they can only tell us to leave or something. <laughs> you know, they can't eat us. So let's go check it out, right? So I walk over. We walk over there. And sitting in one of these tall director chairs was, one of the, was the star of this particular film that mm. we're making. And her name was Kim Darby. Her, I'm not if you with. ever have you if you've ever seen True Grit with John Wayne, I have not seen John Wayne's original one. No, well you've seen the I've you've seen s- the newer one, the newer version. Yeah. Okay, the girl Maddie. What was her last name? Darby. Darby. Kim Darby. Yeah. She was sitting here in a chair, and we strolled up there, and I just I didn't know who the fuck she was. Mm. You know, particularly when you meet somebody like that that you've seen on the screen in person, there's not an instant connection. You gotta kind of. Oh, okay. After right, a while, you, right. you recognize who they are. And um, I said, what's going on, man? She goes, well, I'm just, you know, chilling back, waiting on my, you know, the crew to reset and like that. And she said, her name is Kim and I'm Tim, blah, 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 like that. And I told her, well, we're headed out to Topanga to throw the frisbee for a while on the beach. She goes, come on out with us. <laughs> she goes, well, maybe I can come out when we're done here. You know, we'll see. Well, a couple hours later, here she comes strolling out on the oh, beach. Oh, my God. You know, and... and uh, she had, uh, you know, come out and hung out with us for a little while. That's pretty cool. Yeah. But what what made you want to leave? Because you were there for like well, a year or so? I was for a couple of years, yeah. You know, the whole Hollywood thing, that bubble lo- had long since burst for me. You know, you mm. have this, 
everybody has their own expectations about a certain thing. Like my story, for instance, you know. Yeah. Um, people and I, in the in the story about the dimly lit, smoky back rooms kind of thing. That, that people have their own vision of motion picture and television and things like that. Well, I actually saw how it was done. Mm. And it just the bubble was pop for me, you know. It didn't mean the same thing to me anymore, and I just got, used I got it. bored with it. Yeah, and I said, you know, I think I've had enough. <laughs> and and that's when I drove back to Wisconsin. I wasn't there for maybe a couple of weeks, just hanging out and fucking off. And that's when my buddy called me and said, "Dude, I'm going to Florida tomorrow. You want to go?" And wh- which buddy was this? Mark is his name. Clark. I call him the book because I couldn't. I could have very well have used his name. And some of the names are real names, but some of the names are, are made sure, up. Sure. Yeah. Because and, and and the reason for that is I. I have too much respect for the people that I grew up in this industry with to just throw their name out there, sure. you know, and throw them under the bus like that without their permission. Some people I had gotten permission from, like um, like Todd Bigelow and, and mm. Bam Bam, Scotty Bigelow, I told you about. Now, I right. could say them because I had the permission to do so. Well, I couldn't get a hold of Mark, so I called him Clark in the book. Mm. Clark was who You've I... You've talked to him now, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They've since... I mean, they're just yeah. blown away by the whole thing. <laughs> you know, and um, um, I could not, by law, and, you know, when I was publishing with St. Martin's Press, I had to do the, um, you know, through the editing, blah, 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 and stuff, and I had to get with their legal department and sort through their through some legal issues, and one of those issues was that very thing, the naming of names. Mm. And you know, not everybody went to prison, there was just too many of us, man. I mean, there was five crews working by the time I took shit over. And I'm working five crews in Southwest Florida, and there's anywhere from, you know, 40, 50, 60 people on a crew. So they're focused on the guys who are more run, the senior people. The bigger obviously. guys, more visible, yeah. you know, guys that have been around. And know? the whole town was in on it, too. So. Everybody was hauling pot, <laughs> the rest man. in the whole town. And the thing about it, too, in those days is nobody gave a shit who owned, whose job it was. You know, like when mm. I was sent offshore with, 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 Captain Billy and, and Mark and I, well, there's only three people in the boat, the captain and Mark and me. Sure. Um, and, you know, you don't get paid right away for the job that you did. That has, stuff gets sent to Miami and they have to start selling that off before you get paid for that right. load. So consequently, two, three weeks will go by before I get paid for that particular job. Mm. Since then, I've done probably five or six different ones. And then I don't know, I'm getting paper bags slid across the table at me and I don't remember... And, and this isn't like a corporate account where you're keeping track of <laughs> There's everything. There's no lettering going it's on. It's all up here. You're like, wait, did I do a job then? Oh, wait, did I make... A, how much money was on that one? Yeah. There's a lot to keep track of. And it man. was just, you know, all paper cash? bag, shoved, shoved, yeah. shoved for a job that I don't remember even having done. You know? But you you weren't going... He called you to go down there because he's like, I'm just going down to we, Florida. We and didn't like, go down there to all bought. We didn't even have a clue. We and hit, so this was Chokoloski Island. Chokoloski. Chokoloski. Chokoloski Island. I'll put the map again in the corner. It's a 129-acre paradise tucked away right in here, you know. On the west coast. On the on the west coast of Florida. About as far as – it's the last city south that you can go on it and before you get to the Everglades National Park and the mm. Big Cypress Preserve. From there, it's straight east – or straight uh, west – or east to Miami. And how – like how many people live there? At the time. Total population of that town was just under 500. And it still is that today. And this article says 600 at the end there, but they just they just threw that in there for And sure. is it just like, is it a couple trailer parks? It's, it's is trailer it like- parks. It's trailers. There are, the houses that are there um, t- typically are, um, you know, um, founding families or families that have been there for, mm-hmm. for a long time. You know, and the trailer part aspect of it was, you know, snowbirds and 
you know, people vacationing and coming down for fishing, you know, and that Got sort it. of thing. Because a lot of the guys' fathers at that time were were fishing guides, backwater guides and things like that. You know, it's some of the best fishing in the world is found right here. I'll bet, yeah. And uh, um, presidents and senators have been known to come down and, and fish these waters, you know. With so. a couple of people ripping yeah. the joint right next to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> George Bush comes down every year to Captiva. Oh, of course he does. Sanibel and Captiva, <laughs> you know, but... Um, yeah, so, and when you're talking about moving night after night after night, you know, and there was a chapter in the book that I wrote here um, where we had worked 28 nights in a row. And some of the guys would have thought, would have said it was more than that, but I left it at 28 nights. And, um, and every night it's, you know, 20 tons. 30 yeah, tons. This was crazy. 35, 40 tons. One night we did 55 tons just to see if we could do it. I mean, it wasn't about money anymore. After and what, what what year did you go down there? I was, went down in 1979. And how old were you? I was just turned 20. I was just about to turn 21 and a half, almost 22. So you were a kid. Oh, yeah, I was just And kid. you guys, you just went to, your buddy Clark, Mark, whatever, was going down there. Going down to work on a crab boat. Okay, so, so he knew he was going to work on a crab boat. Yeah. And he's like, I can get you a job there. Well, not at that time. It didn't turn out like that. I just went because um, he invited me to go, and I said, I was that kind of a guy, and I was never one to, and I still am not one to pass up an opportunity and then, you know, a week or so or whatever later, kick myself in the ass for not having done it. Sure. I can say I did it. You're would, you're the guy that I could just see like I could call you up with the crazy maybe not now I'd call you up with the craziest shit you would just be like bet cool I'm in let's go <laughs> let's go man that's how I wound up in Hollywood you know my cousin yeah. said come on out so yeah, I'm, I'm there it. cool I'm going so be there tomorrow yeah but you know we went into it hearing you know bits and pieces of stories about smuggling going on and stuff like ghost stories you know and um, you never see it. You don't very, very hear about it. Nobody ever talked about it, ever. Even when I was involved in it. You work one night and you get with your buddies the next day and go into town and go party at a club or something like that. You never spoke of it. Never brought it, it up. It was never brought up, ever. Did someone ever, ever, ever like have to tell you that? Nope. It's just understood. It was just understood because, mm. I mean, had you done something like that, you, you're just done, man. Yeah. And that falls over into the spending of the money that you're making. Because we're mm. making, like I said, I'm averaging 100000 bucks a week as a kid. But but again, you were going down there to catch some fucking crabs. Well, I went down there. Mark went down there to work on this boat. He had a job secured. And his brother-in-law um, that was running the fish house, the only fish house on the island, um, was building – him and his sister were building their new house. Mm. I went down to kind of – I had a job when I got there. I was going to work carpentry or, or oh, laboring, help okay. laboring, helping them yeah. build the house and stuff like that. And the house got built, and I was kind of doing other, a couple of other different things around town. And – um, um, the Captain Billy was itching to get into the pothauling thing, you know, like, apparently. So there were, um, the captain, like I said, there's a captain and two crew. That's Red, right? Red. Captain, captain, captain Red. Red. Billy, Captain Red. I Got couldn't it. find him to get his permission. He said, I don't care. You know, after it was all said and done, I don't care. Go ahead. Tell him. <laughs> <laughs> but my, um, my publisher at that time said I didn't have his permission to do so. So I couldn't, and no, I can't implicate yeah. someone who had not ever been implicated. And Billy was never implicated. Oh, he never he went He skated right through and a couple of them did. What kind of house is he living in today? He's got a huge freaking two-story yeah. brick, 
<laughs> he had that even at that time. You know, he built this big ass fucking house, man. Oh you know? my god! But that's just how it was. You know, I mean, yeah. And his family. He came from a. a you know, his family had had some money. Um, he ran uh, the fish house that we were working for that we, where they were brought our cats to was called Ernest Hamilton Stone Crabs. Mm. He married uh, Ernest Hamilton's daughter. Oh wow! So he was their father-in-law. Oh, he, he wasn't was, missing any meals. They were one of the founding families in Everglades. So yeah, Ernest, uh, girl, you know, coming up in that business, he was had property all over the place. I mean, they had some coins, so he could probably how he got off too. And they teach you, <laughs> they teach you how to spend money to not have anything to show for it, but you could live within your means. And stone crabbing is a very lucrative business. You know, I mean, I was you know, I was making seven hundred, twelve hundred dollars a week sometimes during season. Oh, because they're still paying you to go catch crabs. And crab you got to do the crabbing yeah. to do the pot hauling, man. It's just yeah. you know, you just can't do one or the other because yeah. you got to go. Story. You got to go out crabbing, you know? <laughs> and it's not unusual for a boat to stay out late or you know into the wee hours in the morning. Should some of unfortunate weather event take place or you break down or whatever like that, it's a lot, lot of, of unfortunate weather out there. A lot huh? of a lot of unfortunate <laughs> weather was happening, man. <laughs> And breakdowns and what have you, but yeah. we would do it, you know, we would, you know, we would go out there, but we wouldn't pull that day. Mm. You know, we would just sit out there and, you know, dick around till you know, late afternoon. And What are you doing? Just turning on music <clears throat> and smoking weed and chilling? Smoking weed and diving off the boat, swimming around and shit, you know, and... You're going swimming? Oh, yeah. yeah. 30 miles offshore in the Gulf? No, 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 no. We're, we're not quite there yet. We're still just, you know, we're probably 15, 20 miles out. Yeah, you're going swimming 15, 20 miles out? Yeah, sure. You're not getting eaten by a shark? No. The water's clear enough. I mean, you can see them if they show up. That's very reassuring. They like to show Mm. up and hide under the boats. You fucking Florida people, man. (laughs) Well, it's not only sharks. you got to watch out. It's gators, man. You know, and all that shit that comes with the Everglades. Gators out there, too. Not in that that setting, but on the water, it's sharks. On land, it's gators. You know, but um, that being said... We just hang out there all day and fuck off, you know, and a lot of times, depending on the size of the load, on my first time out ever, you know, when I got, you know, shanghaied, as it were, my first, um, Captain Billy and Mark had this guy from Michigan working on while I was doing the house and, you know, working other things at that time. Well, mm. Billy kind of didn't want this guy around because he didn't know him that well. didn't trust him. He was from Michigan. Mm. Well, Clark and I, or Mark and I, rather, were Mark was Nancy and Thorne's brother-in-law. Thorne was a native. Who's wait? Who's Nancy and Thorne again? Nancy was Mark's brother, Mark's sister. Thorne was Nancy's wife or husband. I'm sorry. And who was Thorne? I'm just trying to keep the name. Thorne was Thorne was Mark's brother-in-law, his sister's husband. But how who, he ran the fish house on the island, right? That's he, what it he was. He ran Ernest okay. Hamilton Stone Crab's fish Got house. It. So what's his face, and Captain Captain Red. Billy, Captain Red, yeah. and everybody on the island who caught. Their catch went exclusively to that fish house. Got it. And went over to Miami, fresh every day. So Mark is wired in through the owner here with all the ca- any captains and stuff. Yeah. So Billy knew he was coming. Thorne introduced him to that. So Mark, they had an opening and they had a guy on the boat. And the boat has two what they call pullers on them. If you're pulling these traps, and it's very similar to how um, the guys up in Alaska pull. Um, King crab traps. Mm. It's a very similar scenario. Rather than having a grappler hook and a line that they toss out between two bags floating and catch that line in between, and they're pulling up a thousand pound plus trap, depending on how full it is, we're dealing with traps that are only 50 to 60, 70 pounds. 
and they have a single, instead of a 5 8 inch rope, we've got a 3 8 inch nylon rope and a buoy about the size of a soccer ball. So all the captains that go out take two people. And then how big is the boat usually? This, ours was a uh, near 50 foot uh, okay. marine management, it's called. It's a wide open, open Sizable deck boat. vessel yeah. designed for, for hauling the traps. Right, you know? right. And at one point in time, we were hauling out. We were we would go to a, a line of traps. We had seven thousand of these traps, just our boat. How and far out? Like fifteen miles from right on shore to fifteen miles out, twenty miles out, depending on the depth of the water, you know. And in that area here in South Florida, if you were to go northwest, the, the water gets deeper quicker. If you were to go straight out west or to the south, the water remains shallower because you're now you're in the Bay Area. Now you're getting off to the Keys sure. and the Marquesas sure. and the Tortugas. So that's relatively shallow water in there. And we gauge the depth basically by every mile you go out, it gets a foot deeper. Mm. So we're 20 miles out. You're in about 20, 25 feet of water. Or if we got a little bit north, we would deal with trapped lines that were 30 foot long and some that were 80 foot long, depending on the depth. And every every day we would go to a different. We call them lines. We go to a different line of traps every day. So when we got to seven thousand traps, we're pulling seven hundred of these fuckers a day. I'm on the port side stern. He's on the on the or, or he's on the port side stern. I'm on the starboard side stern. Mark. Mark is, yeah. and he's left-handed, so he can reach over and with his left hand and catch the buoy on that side of the boat. I'm right-handed. Then as the buoy's coming up to me, I can catch it on my side of the boat. Science, yeah. And the way it Easy. works is, as I as I pull one, he's dropping one. I'm clearing and cleaning and just that and rebating mine. And when I get ready, when he gets ready to pull his, I'll drop mine. So we always put one back where we take one out. And this is what you thought you were going to be doing. This is what I thought I was going to do. So th- th- he doesn't trust this other guy. They get rid of him, and Mark says, I can get you the job. Well, they got rid of him. Yeah, the guy worked him. Like, for a week, they worked his ass to death. They quit. <laughs> they made him quit. Because this is like, I mean, this just the work, this work alone will make a man out of you, dude. Oh, I mean, fuck yeah. And most of the guys would last one, maybe maybe two seasons, and they've had it. That's mm. it. But I worked, you know, probably six seasons, you know, because you got to do that work in order to do the to stay with that boat if you're going to haul pot, you know, that, yeah. that crew's working. Yeah. So long story short, yeah, I mean, the uh, in the scenario by which I, I explained to you is very similar to what they do in, in Alaska. And as far as you catch the buoy with the catch pole, we call it. Mine was, a, it, most of the guys custom made their own poles. Mine was a, like a six-foot piece of one-by-one lath, uh, pressure-treated lath. Mm. And I would um, rope and... Um, fiberglass a, a shark's hook on the end of it but i grind off the barb so i could grab the underneath the buoy and grab the line pull that in and go through a block and tackle and around that thing that big thing on the boat you see on deadliest cats it's spinning yes. yeah they yeah, put yeah. the rope in it like yeah, that yeah well it's it's essentially two pie plates together like this spinning you put the rope in it and it cinches the rope and catches it and down here in the bottom, there's a little piece called a knife that's sticking out that kicks the rope back out, keep it from winding all the way around it. Mm. They take theirs and put it in a coiler and coils it up because they're dealing with, you know, how many, yeah, how many 100, crabs? 200 fathoms of, of rope, you know, yeah. that's six, that's, you know, as much as a thousand feet of line. And how, like how big is, is per trap again? How big did you say that was? Like the, each trap that you put out? Each trap is... Um, Anywhere's from fifty to sixty pounds or so, like that. But it, like size, is it like uh, milk five crate? By five? But about size of two or three milk crates together. 
maybe okay. maybe like this by this deep by about that tall. So you leave one out there for a few days. You're expecting to pull up fifty pounds of crabs or something? No, no. We put them in a line. We drop out three hundred and fifty of them going one direction. Mm. The first half of the line can run anywhere from you know twelve to seventeen miles. Whew. Then you stop and have lunch, and then you skip over 50 yards or so, and you pull another 350 back the same way you came. So you're not mm. twice as far away as when you started. Then you go the next day to another set you've got sitting somewhere else. That begins to soak. Those are catching. So by the time we make it all the way back around, come back to this one, they're full of crab. Wow. Hopefully they're full of crab. Yeah. And out of 700 traps, you're just... You know, we're we're picking them out of there and throwing them over our shoulder sure. like this, and as fast as we can pick them up and let them go, just singing through the buoys. When it's when you're, it, you know, a couple little tricks to, that we learned every now and then to, to speed the process up. But you have to unknot ropes. You're having to fix the boards because the stone crabs will sit in there, and these fuckers are huge, man. Yeah, how big do they get? They are. Uh, gosh, I've seen claws. I've seen crusher claws on crabs as big as my hand. Let's try stone crab, Florida. I got it here. Oh shit! Yeah, wow. Look at that. That guy's holding it in his I've hand right there. I've got that picture right there. Yeah, that was one. Of, that was taken by one of our guys. Oh wow! In, in no shit. That's yeah. like the third that's, one on Google. That's what they call a bull crab. Now, if you notice, they have two different. All crabs have two different claws on I'll them. I'll stick that in the corner of the screen for. They people. have two different claws on them. That one is called the crusher claw. See how big it is? Yeah. Now that goes together like this. Yep. The other one is a cutter. It goes completely together like this. See it? Yeah, they're different. One's for holding it, one's for cutting it. Fucking evolution. And then man. they use their thing to scoop it into their mouth like that. Damn. These are what we're breaking off. Now you break them off here, right there. Because that's what you're selling for real. Right. And we sell the claw and throw the crab back alive. Throat. And within a year and a half or so, it'll grow a new claw big enough, to, big enough to take again. So we're farming, we're farming these, we're reharvesting these crab. Wait, I never knew this is how it worked. Mm -hmm. That's fucking insane. <laughs> That's why. Imagine I, that. Just every like a crab lives for whatever it is four or five years if they actually make it, but every year you're like, oh, it'll grow. I finally grew. Fuck. Here it goes again. again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the, the sustainability of it, you yeah. know. And this is the only place in the world where this delicacy can be found. And you know, there was just so many boats out there working in those days, and and some had big, bigger, bigger operations, some had smaller operations. We were one of the bigger ones. Some of them only pulled four hundred, five hundred traps a day. Had, had you pulled when you went out there the first day? Had you before? It actually happened where it's like, oh, we're going to do weed now. Had you pulled any traps yet? No. No. The scenario, so how did this go down? It had just been imparted to me. This is what you can expect when you get out there, okay? We're going to leave the dock usually 3, 4 in the morning because it takes some time to get to wherever it mm -hmm. is we're going. And as soon as the sun is up light enough for you to see that first buoy with a stick in it, we call it an end buoy. When you see that first mm -hmm. buoy, that's when we start as bright and early as we can because we've got 700 of these fuckers to get through. And if you get out there and the tide is running this way, and you're running at the tide or, or with the tide like this, and you grab that buoy, <laughs> there's mm -hmm. no slack in that line. There's the trap right there. So mm. the captain has to back down the boat so you can against pull in the, the tide against the tide. So you can pull enough rope in to get it get it start to pull it. What we wound up doing was like, wait, 
why are we just run to the other end of the line and pull slack lines back the other way. Mm. So now you're running against the tide. As soon as you pick that buoy up, there's all that slack to take up. You can just... Right. And the boat doesn't stop. It can just zigzag through it. It doesn't have to ever back down. But again, you still hadn't even done any of this. No. So this is the scenario that was imparted to me. And I get on a boat and I, we get out there and, you know, and the, the bunks were in the wheelhouse, right, where the captain's sitting. And I kind of wake up and the sun's up already. I'm thinking, damn, I slept right through it. We should be working by now. (laughs) And I roll over and I look out the bunk and Billy looks down at me. He's got this big shitty grin on his face. And he goes, Timmy, we're not going to pull traps today. He says, we're going to hang out out here all afternoon and unload a pop boat from Columbia tonight. And I said, cool. (laughs) (laughs) There wasn't even like a moment pause. Just like, I'm in. (laughs) I didn't even, yeah, fuck yeah, shit, yeah, why not? I love how they basically just took you hostage out there. And Mark must have been like, he'll be cool with it. It was a big, yeah, because it was a huge tongue in cheek thing for them. You know, but they, you know, they figured they would just surprise me when I got out there. So my first job ever, a day ever working on that boat was the first night I ever hauled pot. That was 15 tons. Okay, so this was the morning when you woke up. He tells you that. When does the boat... Well, first of all, how far offshore are you at that point? At that point, we're probably maybe 8, 10 miles, something okay. like that. So you're still headed out there. And captain tells you we're going to be hauling some pot. What time did that start and how much farther out did you go? That's Well, when I got that word, it was probably just, you know, maybe 7, 8 o'clock in the morning when he told me that. Yeah. And we went and met up with another boat because the load was, you know, they we were anticipating maybe the load would be bigger, but they wound up sending that boat home. So another boat like yours. Another boat like ours. And we went off and, you know, and just did it on our own. You know, we did that job by ourselves. But that was 15 tons. I never, you know. Like at night, though? or Yeah. Like the scenario I'm part of. We'd wait till, you know, three, four hours before sundown, yeah. make a call sign, whatever one's, you know, associated with that vessel. So, like I said, so they know that the boat coming is approaching them is the one that should be. So no surprises on anybody's part. Yep. And pull up there and, you know, depending on the size of the load and how many people were on the big boat or whatever, depended on whether we had to get off of ours and help them bring it out of the hold and get it on deck, then jump down on our boat and they would start throwing it down to us so we could start stacking it. So how big was the first boat you ever saw in this one? Uh, it was a shrimp boat. Probably 60, 70 foot. Okay. Shrimp, so they, boat. did you see the the packages right away? The bales were down below. They were all down were below. Under, were under the deck, hidden. Yeah. Okay. And the so, shrimp boat's big enough, it has a big enough hold that they can do that. Whereas yours can't. You know, no, ours has got just, you know, yeah. minor hole area for, you know, inconsequentials, you know, like preservers and you know spare equipment and shit, shit like that but so how many tons was on this first one 15 tons 15 right i think you said that sorry right and then was it like how was it packaged was it was it sea resistant already no. or did you have to work oh it wasn't well it was packaged in 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 the way that they were packaging it at that time now we i grew up through the evolution of what is now a bale of pot Back in those days, uh, in the earlier days, we were unloading boats. We called them pillow bales. Mm. They weren't in any way, shape, or form compressed bales of weed like you see today. Um, well, the people see pictures of today. They were more um, maybe hand-cranked, pressed, or somebody st- – it was like somebody stomped this bag with their foot 
and then duct taped that bag and stuck it in a burlap bag and then stitched that thing shut. <laughs> and they were all different sizes. There was no rhyme or reason to this shit, man. Some of them were 30 Jesus. pounds and some were 100 pounds. And you just grab it like this and throw it that in a pile. hard on the back end, too. Dude. You know? And it was messy because by the time we get them, they've already been handled. You know, who knows how many times they've been handled. And some of them are starting to leak and get holes in there coming apart and shit. Mm. And, so the weed's and going everywhere when the you're because they're throwing them down. I mean, it's, you know, and if we're in the hole helping them get their shit out before we can get tossed down to us, you know, you're sweating through your clothes and it's just ball-ass busting work, man. Yeah. And there's shit and dust and shit and seeds are flying everywhere and they're just sticking to you. <laughs> all this shake is all over you, man. <laughs> Plus, you know, it's it's the resin dust is floating in the air down below and it's turning us brown. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm stained for like months on end, of, you know, a permanent tan. It oh. doesn't come off until we stop hauling pot for, you know, two or three months for the next. Not even you know, in the shower. The next growing season. No, fuck no. It's water. It's not water soluble. Pot mm. resin is not water soluble, so a shower ain't gonna get it off you. And it just eventually, you take enough showers, it starts coming off in you know patches, and you should begin to see your skin and look like we had some kind of fucking disease, <laughs> right? But, um, you know, the 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 uh, the very second day. That we loaded up to go out to pull traps again. He's no, like, we're doing it again. No trap pulling happened that day. So we went and unloaded another boat. That very next night was 22 tons. Did he... So you do the first one on the ride back. Are you asking him questions? I mean, we were loaded. Where'd it come from? What are we... Are we doing this every day? There's none of that. No. You were no. just going with the flow. Our job as the crew was to... Load the boat. <laughs> Captain's, Regardless of what it is. Captain's job was to drive the fucking boat and watch the radar. And, and when we pull away from that mothership with the load, he's busy doing his work. I mean, you don't fuck with him. He's watching radar. He's listening to the radios. And we have what's called a Polaris scanner. Very unique piece of equipment in those days whereby um, you didn't even have to say anything on the radio. You could just key the mic like that. And the Polaris is scanning 360 degrees, has LED lights that are, that are blinking, scrolling like this. And when you go like that, it stops and it tells you the direction in which that radio signal came. Mm. So we never had to talk on the radio. If there were two boats doing the job and one got out of sight of us at night, because we're running without lights, of course, and we wanted to know where that guy's at. That's it. Oh, he's over there. Wow. You wouldn't have to say anything. This is wild. Yeah, so... Um, How many... <clears throat> here, here's a question, because I, I don't... You sure. Know, I'm not a deep-sea fisherman or anything. Sure. I always kind of wondered this, but, like, are there... How many <clears throat> Coast Guard patrols even are there out there? <laughs> like, th there can't be many. It's all... It's what, Think about it. You get off land, it's all spread out now. Like, right. it gets wider and wider. The right. water just stretches wider and wider. So, right. how, like... You know, it's not like driving on a highway where you got a cop car every like five miles if they're feeling like they're giving tickets today. You know, right. it can't be. There's not that many Coast Guard, I would assume. No. Um, in the early 80s, before the cocaine cowboy screwed everything up for everybody in South Florida. God damn you, Louisa. <laughs> you know, they were drawing so much attention to themselves and they got a government involved because the city of Miami and Broward and Dade County, their officials couldn't handle what was going on. So they begged the government to come down and intervene and, you know, help. And that's when the whole shit started mm. going in Miami. You guys had a great but little system. That's going. when the, uh, they had AWACS flying, the flying radar you know, they had mm. they had a blimp. Uh, they called it the Fat Boy down in Marathon Key, that they'd tethered up on like a 
500 or 1,000 foot piece of cable. It was like a small blimp that had a radar device under it that could see any vessels coming through the gap, they called it. That was our, that was the, um, the Yucatan Pass. We call it the gap. That's the, the area between western Yucatan and, or we, eastern Yucatan and western Cuba. Come up through that and get into the Gulf of Mexico. The only other two accesses to the to the Atlantic or the or the the Gulf in that time were the Mona and the Windward Passes. The Mona and the Windward Passes were bogged down with cocaine smugglers trying to get their shit into the Bahamas and into Miami. Mm. So we decided we're coming around through the through the gap through that way and approach Everglades from from the west. All right, but so I'm, had, I'm putting a map in the corner right here. Is this where you're talking about? Like right here? That's the gap right there. Got it. Come through there. Now we're now we just make a hard right and come right over down to there. So you your boats would be all right here though. This is where you would go pick it up. But they that would be on that. You're saying it's on them to get to. They this have spot. to get a, get yeah. it to us. Got it. Where we can have you know, and, and a lot of times we like to get that boat to come in as close as we can. Sure. Give us enough time because yeah. how the scenario works is. We'll go out and unload the load, whatever it is, our boat or two boats or even three boats, depending on how much shit there is to get. And we'll get loaded. And we try to load, like I said, before sun goes down. So we got some light to see. And that gives us an advantage of, you know, more time to get into the shoreline by by midnight or one o'clock, if best, if we can. And pull into that little place you just put the finger on right there in the 10,000 Islands get up into shore as close as we can get, kill the engines. And that's when the little boats come out from the hiding places in the islands. 15, oh. 20 other little smaller drafting boats that can get through this. Because there's no taking that big-ass boat through there. It's it's pulling maybe 8, 10, drafting 10 feet. Right. So let me pull up uh, Chokolowski. How do you spell that again? C-H-O-K-O-L-O-S-K-E-E. C-H-O-K-O-L-O-S. Okay, got it. All right. So let me just grab a map of this real quick. Right so I can follow. Grab but it. which one were you pointing to? That one. This one? Yeah. Okay, so you guys would come back in. You'd basically get out of the Gulf and then like into this bay area. Yeah, we get out to here. Yep. The little smaller boats will come through the pass out here and, and take it from us. 15, 20 smaller vessels. Right, right now, for people that are listening, we're looking at a, at a picture that's on the table right here. Where is this? This like, is Like relative to that picture that I have in the corner now. Like, where's this part? Where's this? Yeah. You'll have to go to the, the larger. Right here? The South Florida version of it. Show the whole co- the whole South Florida coast. Okay, so I'm going to pull up a map. Let's try that. A lot of imagery today. I like it. Uh, right there. Okay. Look at what they got. Oh, Look yeah. What wow. Got. So where does your boat stop? Here's the. Right out here. Okay. All right. I'm putting this picture in the corner. Now you're going to see. I'll put a little dot right there, too. So it's in the bottom left corner. Right. We stop out there and out through all that labyrinth of shit. All these little boats. All these in. little boats, 15, 20, 25 of them, depending on how much we're going to get, comes out and starts taking it from us. There's a, there's a driver and a crewman on each boat. So your first night, you unload. I'm just recounting here because right. I want to go through your first experience. Sure. This. You unload 15 tons off mm-hmm. this boat. Captain Red says, okay, we're done. We're going in. You go in. It's the middle of the night in the dark. You stop right there. We get it there. And then... Does he say like everyone chill? They're coming, or nope. they just start we pulling kill up? the engine? They already know we're they're waiting on us. <laughs> we had and we're using at that time a lot of the counter surveillance technology that the government was using against us. 
because we had a cube and a couple of partners in Miami that was that were selling this shit to the government. <laughs> we're buying the same shit, if not better shit, than the government had. And one of those uh, one of those things is in particular is what they call a parabolic mic microphone. Mm. Like you said, if you watch an NFL game, you see the guy with a big plastic looks like a um, radar dish. Yeah, yeah. But, but it has a microphone in it, and it's picking up the voices that they're whispering in the huddle out on the field. Oh my god! So we don't have to say anything. We just pull up there and kill the engine. These guys already know they can hear us. They already know when to come out. Because they're listening, they have that thing. And if you're offshore waiting on the boat or something like that, and a in a, in a customs agent or a DEA or somebody farts a mile down the coast, you can hear it. <laughs> oh man, this is and this is in 1979. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We wow. were reusing at that time a lot of technology coming out of uh, Vietnam era, the Starlight Scope. This was this was before infrared and, and night. Vi- this was the night vision. Yeah, and. And it, what it did was it accumulated the light, the ambient light in, at night in order for you to see what was going on. And you turn them on, and it's like, it's like the flash bulb on a camera. It goes, that little whining noise. You turn that thing on, and it winds up. Now you can see just like broad daylight. But someone where you were looking at, someone light a match, it blinds you. Because oh <laughs> it's, it's, it's keying, it's drawing that light in. So these are some of the, the, some of the toys that we were working with. And how many boats pull up? Uh, depending on what we're, we're what we're doing, uh, how much we're doing, anywhere from you know fifteen, twenty boats, twenty five of these little Half boats the like town. flies on a. Gar- hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Garbage can, man. Half the town. Half the town, and some of the people from um, Goodland or even Marco get involved because it takes anywhere from, you know, 50 to 70 people to make one job work. Did anyone, like, make a joke like, oh, the new guy. How you doing? None of that? No. Just all business. No. no. Nobody ever said anybody's name. If you knew them, you just don't talk about it. Just not. Because they're using the same shit we're using. If they're listening to us, you're going to hear names. And it's just like, hey, man, what's up? What's going on, bro? It's just work. How long? Get it? There's no time for conversation and bullshit, man. You just they pull up to us, our boat like flies on a garbage can. They just sticking in there any which way they can get it. Is it one at a time? One, or? No, they're all they're just all crowding around that boat. Five or six of them on the stern. They're bumping their bows up against the boat. And the guy gets off and he starts throwing them on their boat, helping us unload. How long does this take? They make as many trips as they can through that labyrinth into the into Chukaluski as they can until our boat's unloaded. Oh, it was that much on there? They couldn't even get it in one shot? Oh, all yeah. those boats? Yeah, shit, yeah. You're putting How big made, were their boats? Uh, 20, 23, 21, 23 foot. And they're coming back. They're wide, wide beam, shallow drafting boats with typically with twin 235 Evinrudes on them. And they haul ass, dude. And they had vertical and horizontal trim. So as long as that prop would go through the water, the boat's going to go through the water. So we can get in excess areas where if somebody were following us, they'd be running the ground. So once once they offload the stuff, your job's done. Right. You got nothing left to do. What are these people doing? It taking it to stash houses or what? They're taking it to somebody to one of our buddies' houses on the island that they've we've literally taken all the furniture out of the house. <laughs> 
and start stacking this shit from the back of the house, the bedroom, kitchen, dining room, living room, from floor to ceiling until the house is full. So there's not like the competition of like, ooh, I fit 12 on my boat. You only got 10. It's just they're all going to the same place Take as many as anyway. you can take. They're all got going it. to the same place. So they're just employees, cogs on the wheel here. Well, they're part of the chain of employment, you know, in the, in the, in the hierarchy of how everything works is simply that the guy's running offshore like us three. The captain, yeah. captain's, you know, he's getting paid a hefty sum. Yeah, probably two hundred grand a night. <laughs> Us as crewmen, nineteen seventy nine. It's nineteen seventy nine oh in the eighties, and the crewmen, us two guys. Um, the reason for the amount of pay that we're getting, and I'm you now after those first two loads that I did, the very first two days I ever worked on that boat, I got rookie pay. What was rookie pay? Five grand a night. That's probably more money you ever made in your fucking life. Dude, <laughs> you know, when I got the money, you know, when I got that paper bag shoved across the kitchen table at me with 10 grand in it, it was like, holy crap, this is fucking awesome. Because, you know, in those days, 15, 12, 15,000 was a good blue collar wage. After day one, though, they unload all the, all the stuff off the boats, all the little boats, dude. They take it away. Do you guys go right back out? We go offshore and clean up. Oh. Clean our boat off. And did you come back in before the next day, or you stayed Sit out, out there? Sit out there next to a to a line of traps, wake the next morning, pull that line of traps, and bring it in. Okay, so you'd never gotten off the boat before you got paid at a kitchen table somewhere. No, no, no. So pay you're just chilling. Like, all right, pay I'm doesn't come for weeks after. Oh, my God. Because that's, that load that you brought in has to start getting sold before they'll get paid from that load. Right, okay, we'll, we'll get to that. But right. you have to clean. This was the other thing. Yeah. Because these pack these pillow you call them <sighs> pillow bags pillow bales okay pillow bales Nasty because fuckers. they were so bad and loose the weed is getting all over the place and it's not Dude, just, you can't just pick it up and smoke it it's all like seeds and shit we're shoveling we're brooming it into piles and taking an ice shovel and throwing I've thrown more shit I've dumped more shit out of my boots than any ten guys could smoke in their lifetime. <laughs> I'll guarantee it. It was that nasty. But the thing of it is, is because it was so nasty, we were down there with knives and screwdrivers getting it out of the little cracks and everything like that. Because if something were to, to grab somebody's attention and they come out looking, they one board seed. our vessel one seed, you're cooked. You're Even done. if you could say, oh, I just smoked that. Doesn't no, matter. because it's a seed. Yeah, fuck. There's no, there's no assumption on their, their only assumption is that you were involved with whatever it was we're looking for. And they seize your boat, and, and that's the end of it. On a 50, 60-foot boat, you got to get every single thing. Like, every what's this? Uh, the smell's got to be everywhere, too. Oh, yeah, dude. We Insane. smell like, uh, constantly where we're smelling. <laughs> How do you get rid of that? You, well, we, the boat itself, you bleach it. You rinse it down and bleach it. And what about it. your fucking arms and shit? It, hey, oh, well. <laughs> Dive off the boat. I smell like it. You don't up, see it though. You know, yeah, but <laughs> it's just how know, I smell. <laughs> nobody ever questioned that. For you know, it, it, it's something that I that I impart to as part of the story. But it was never a concern. And never it went. Oh God, I look like a bucking, you know, a ball I of guess resin. They assume that yeah. <laughs> I got a resin tan, man. You know right. what? But uh, as dirty as it, nasty as it was, that was the reason why we go offshore and clean up while the shore crew continues doing what they're doing. Now all this stuff has to first be thing in the morning, right? Put and locked away in this house before the sun comes up. Oh, this now, is still all before the sun comes up. All before the sun comes up. So you're cleaning in the dark. We're cleaning in the dark offshore. We got deck lights and shit like that, yeah. you know. But the guys are putting the shit into the houses, and while they're bringing it, there's a shore crew. Yeah. There's a whole other shore yeah. crew, man. There's hundred, like I said, there's like fifty, sixty people that takes to make these this shit work. Fuck yeah. And we're only a small part of the cog in the wheel. We take it from the mothership and bring it and give it to them. Now the shore crew works. They get into the houses, and what doesn't get put in the houses. 
some of the guys that are, you know, have vehicles that are going to be driving, whether it be a car, a van, or a truck, or a, a bus, or a motorhome, or, you know, whatever you can stick a bale of pot in we were using. That's when the the women in the in the in the town get involved in it because they're drivers the next day. Oh my god! And if the if it didn't go into the house, the driver of the vehicle is never the owner of it. They'll bring it out while we're loading the house, load that van, car, truck, or whatever it is, drive it into town, and park it in the driveway. Go in the house and leave it sit there all night. The actual moving it to Miami happens the next morning when the sun comes up. So it's never in their home, but it's still in a car that they own. Right. We bring it all in during the night, and we ship it all to Miami during broad daylight the next day. Now, how long did it take to clean the boat? Three you It could it? take a couple hours, three, four hours. I'm surprised you get it done that fast, to yeah. be honest. Well, we got good at it after a while. And then um, <laughs> uh, Billy's dad came up with a great idea that we ultimately wind up doing was taking a couple rolls of plastic of visqueen and duct tape, line the whole entire deck of the boat with visqueen, Tape it over the sides and duct tape it down like a big bowl. Then we go out and load the fucking thing with all this nasty shit. So when we get the load off, we go offshore, we just pull all that plastic together and tie a chain and an anchor to it and throw it off the boat. Oh, that's fucking genius. <laughs> Clean. <laughs> just so what you, you had to, to do, do to that. make it work. Wow. So he came up with that eventually. So yeah. that, that took a lot of time off. Screw of this cleaning up shit, man. Fuck this. <laughs> you know, every night. Every, yeah. So we were working two, three nights a week. How you, know. fa- you did the first two nights, you get the rookie pay, 10K. Yeah, 10K. Now, how fast is it? You're 21 years old still, like, or 22, whatever. Like, how fast does this ramp up? Like, up the very next job we did. I'm, now I'm getting paid according to the size of the load. Now, Captain understood he had a crew that was willing to do the work and then could do the work. Well, we jumped right in, man, and we were, you know, we were. How many nights a week? Oh God, anywhere from two to four nights a week sometimes. Holy shit! You know, and I'm, and it's, you know, fifty, seventy-five grand a night for me. Cash. Eat, eat cash. Now, eat where your, were you living? I was living right on the island, in right a trailer home. In a trailer. Yeah. What are you doing with all this cash? <laughs> Anything we fucking wanted to, <laughs> you know, and that's a great question because. Uh, we were instructed and, and pretty much taught by the adult generation how to spend money to not have anything to show for it. Because if you started buying stupid shit like Porsches and Ferraris and, you know, He's out. dude, yeah. you just don't work anymore because you're yeah. a liability. Yeah. So they taught us how to spend money certain ways without having any shit to show for it. Was there like a class? Like, did you go, yeah. did you go to a classroom somewhere, <laughs> sit down, take notes? Or, uh, yeah, like, well, how, like, how do these understood, like, what's not explained is understood, but like, it's not. Like, how do you... When does this start? Well, it, like, does it red happens, sit you down? Or? No, it just happens as a... Yeah, yeah, he does. He, he says, no, no, be careful, he says. No. And this <laughs> oh, is why. Yeah. Because if you start looking stupid and sticking out, then you're done. You, just, you won't work anymore. So we could spend you know, a fairly decent amount of money because stone crabbing and, and pulling traps and selling the stone crabs to the fish house and that's a very good lucrative job. business. Good job, yeah. You know, I can make anywhere depending on how good we're catching and, you know, it's ups and downs and shit like that as much as $1,200 a week in those days during season. The catches were that lucrative. So I could live according to that means of, of income and anything over and above that, you know, was done by subterfuge, and when I say that, it's, it's simply if you drive out onto the island and go around the loop on the island, it's only 129-acre island, and you see the trailers. There's just nothing very out of the ordinary about right. these trailers until you open the door and walk inside. 
And then there's the plush Berber carpet, and there's the leather furniture. There's all the new electronics and all the new appliances. I mean, it's just decked out inside, you know, where nobody can see it. This is how this is how you spend money and not show. But if someone comes in your house, I mean, nobody comes in there. Nobody... I'm saying, like, if a, if a customs agent or something like says house call for some, oh, what's that? The latest TV? No, yeah. but it never happened. Never. Be- no, because they didn't have at those at, at that time. The United States government had no fucking idea to the extent to which this was taking place. <laughs> they had no fucking idea. I mean, it, in retrospect, it kind of blows my mind a little bit when I think back about it, you know, but yeah. Jesus Christ. And some of the shit that I did makes me go like, you could have cut a cigar with my fucking ass, you know. But um, that was part of the, you know, the, the, the spending thing, you know. I mean, um, go to Miami and you, you buy out a club for the night. You, pay the, you take the tab. You yeah. take two. You know, I take two hundred grand to Miami to party for the for the for Friday and Saturday night, and in the hopes of coming back with like eleven dollars and change in my pocket. Oh my god! <laughs> Just buying drinks for everybody, and that's you know, there's no receipts. There's no you know, All cash. and most of the, and the managers of these clubs in in South Beach and Miami know they get who it. we are. They get it. Yeah, come on in, man. We take <laughs> yeah. over the champagne room VIP. or whatever like that. Just everybody, <laughs> top shelf, whatever. No, don't limit the drinks. Whatever you want, man. Just wow. I'm trying to get rid of this cash. So, wow. you know, help me out. And then if I'm, cash runs out, then Jimmy takes 200 grand out of his pocket and throws it out there to the manager. And then we just continue. Now, who were you hanging with doing this? Because your one buddy, you said he was married, right? Mark? Was that Mark? Yeah. Was he married? Well, no, he had a girlfriend. Yeah, girl. so is they, are they coming out with you too? And no, like, they they party a little bit differently than us other guys. Mark yeah. was a few years older than me. He was yeah. like four years older than Subdued. I. But us 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 younger guys who weren't attached in that in that way. You know, we go off and just do some craziest. I mean, the craziest fucking shit, man. Like some of the other guys in the business, you're saying? Yeah, mm. you know, I mean, because like I said, there's you know, of a town between two islands, the entire population was just under 500 people half the town was doing this because you can't take the same 50 60 guys and gals and work them day after day after night yeah. after night because you gotta have a dude, lot of people in on it i mean just unloading just to go off the off offshore to get on one of these freighters and you know i've seen freighters and i'm we're talking about 400 plus feet of boat of ship out there with as much as two three hundred plus thousand pounds on them at one time and we would go out a couple nights in a row three or four different boats and unload these things how did you guys do the money like what did you charge per pound well i didn't understand that until i got older until the the first and second generations of them went to prison and that was left an opportunity for me a very particular sequence of events took place in order for me to become what i did and have the connections that i did um it turns out that um, having this information imparted to me when it came time for me to say, hey, um, it was about $175 a pound we get paid. And so how you're doing – so that first that first night you did 15 – Oh, we're turning, we're turning 15, 20, 30 million a week cash when the jobs start stacking up. So there's 2,000 pounds in a ton. So you did 15 tons. Yeah, there's 30,000 30, times 175 bucks. That'll do. It's about $7 million. So what happens is they pay the crew, whoever's job it is, who's ever in control of it, one of the brothers, the Daniels boys, whoever's job that is, they pay everybody that needs to be paid, and they keep what's left over. Now, who are the Daniels boys? You and I were talking about this off camera. You talk about it in your book, but can right. you explain this whole thing to people? Sure. Um, the Daniels brothers were a group of brothers, five brothers, 
that had come from Fort Myers down to Chukaluski back in the early 70s, mid-70s-ish, like that, to, you know, to fish. They had come from being, um, they were uh, masons and mason tenders. They were block layers. Mm. They came down to do, you know, to, to change a pace, to do fishing and stuff and whatnot. And the youngest of the five brothers, Craig, uh, befriended and got to know very well the, the original pot hauler. The first generation pot hauler. His name was Lauren Totch Brown. He's a legend in the Everglades. Mm. Just a just a just a wonderful human being, a beautiful man, you know. I talk real slow with that settler and tiebacks and nothing got him going, nothing shook him up and poured him out. He was just like that. And he brought Craig into that little fold that they had going on. Totch was the original. He went down to Col- to Panama. Round the corner into Columbia and up the rivers to find the the river we the grasslands and the to find the Colombian red that everybody was wanting in those days, and it took him a lot of trial and error to get the shit figured out. And he finally got it figured out until the point where it was, you know, we could do it without you know without without you know sweating it. Well, Craig got involved with him and you know, was started to make money, and he comes and approaches his other four brothers one one afternoon with a suitcase full of money. And he says, look at, look at what I got. <laughs> and, you know, he said, told him what he was doing, and they, they actually shunned him. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. He said, dude, you know, that's ridiculous. That's what crazy. That's stupid. The time? They were just fishermen, you know. Just if you're not stone crabbing, you're catching bait for the stone crabbers, which involved mullet and, you yeah. know, their pompano fishing or their yeah. net fishing or something like that. Something to do with the fishing industry. Because at that in that early stage of the game, they were under the misguided assumption that you work with these guys, they'd just, just soon kill you rather than pay you. Well, again, nothing could have been further from the truth. They needed us because of this. Mm. You know, it was this. It started in Miami with Totch and the and the Cubans, but when the cocaine cowboys and the cocaine started coming through the Mona and Windward passes and mucking up that shit, he said, "Look, there's too much shit going on over here between the Bahamas and you know, and the Miami and that." Let's come over to my place on the other side mm. of the Florida. Nobody's over there. There's nothing over there besides we got this. Well, here was, and this is the other unspoken thing. Like, obviously, weed's always in demand. And at the time, it was very, very illegal. So it's all black market. But the cost of a pound of weed versus a pound of cocaine, oh. it was just a business decision because they're like, right. well, we can make fucking 100 times as much moving this. You know, right. like if you look at the original, even like the Mexican cartels, for people that like watch the Narcos show, like Narcos Mexico mm-hmm. and stuff, they do a pretty good job running through the real history, how that went down. They're just like, they're strictly like, all right, one day they're growing pot. Next day they're like, nope, we're going to move Yayo just because it's better. And there was a reason it's more for more dangerous, that. though. There's a reason for that di- paradigm shift in the industry with regards to cocaine. And marijuana, ultimately, was that when the cocaine cowboys started, it was all precipitated by a woman by the name of Griselda Blanco. Griselda. The godmother of cocaine. She was a bad man. Now, if anybody out there thinks they know the history of of this woman, um, they would under, also understand that between her and her husband are the ones that brought Pablo Escobar and Carlos Later out of the gangs in Medellin. They were selling weed. Taught them how to gather the coca paste and set them up to be their conduit between the Colombia cocaine and the United States. She and her husband immigrated to the United States, and that's a whole other story in itself, but she ultimately wound up in Miami. Of course she did. And Escobar wound up being the killing, murdering, backstabbing son of a bitch that he was because she taught him how to be that. Yeah, 
But she was all those things. And she turned Miami into a fucking hellhole. I mean, a killing ground. That's when the the government and the authorities finally realized they had a problem when the um, the uh, Dadeland massacre occurred at a Crown Liquor store in yep. Miami. This was covered in the docs, in Billy's docs, I think, right? Yeah. Corbin. Yeah. yeah. Billy Corbin, yeah, did that in his um, in his Cooking Cowboys. What happened at that again? In in the in the Crown Liquor store, it was uh, gr- it was two Colombian groups. Now everybody's selling cocaine. Everybody wants to be the guy, but Griselda had a hand on everybody. And if she didn't like you, she'd kill you. Yeah. If you had cocaine of hers or whatever and didn't pay her, of course she'd kill you. Didn't she kill like one of her husbands or two? She killed them all. Yeah. And even if you paid her and got her shit and paid her, and she didn't like you for whatever reason, she'd kill your ass just like ordering a pizza. And that mentality took place all over Miami and turned Miami into a paradise lost, as Time Time Magazine called it. Big front page Miami overview, paradise lost. She precipitated and caused all of that because of who she was. Well, when that started to, you know, the government started to intervene and take that over, you know, and trying to subdue and get rid of the cocaine problem that was happening in South in South Florida. Now, um, if you have seen the movie Blow. Of course. All-timer. Who hasn't, really? You know? Phenomenal. I mean, if it's the, the genre you're interested in, you've seen Blow. Well, in the movie Blow, George Young's partner, Diego, is actually Carlos Slater. Yes, based off Carlos Slater. Right. So when you see the, the part about Norman's K in the Bahamas... And that's what ended George Young and Carlos's um, partnership, because he started going off on his own. Norman's K is actually Norman's K in the Bahamas. It's what it's called. Mm-hmm. And if you fly over that island today, you can still see planes that didn't quite make it on and quite didn't quite make it off, dotting the waters around that island. Um, it's insane. Like, what these guys did... Flying in in the middle of the night, like you talk about this whole boat thing. At least, like it's two boats. You're like, hey, what's up, bro? You're going back and forth. These guys are fucking doo, 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 dropping fucking bales of coke onto right. the water, and then someone like Luisa was going out there pulling the bales off the water, right. driving it back in, coming back out with the Donzi, pulling them, driving back in, coming back out with the Donzi, pulling them. It's like this is insane right. how this had to go down and how organized, but like how many things could go wrong. You right. know what I mean? And to get out of that scenario is why he bought that island so they could land the planes, put it on boats, and run it to Miami on boats. Nobody's looking for airplanes, and the boats, these go fast, as the government called them, would just run that shit, you know, into Miami yeah. like that. And you're right. And they opted for the, the, the smaller cargo with the, with the same amount of profit. If not more. Oh, more. Yeah. And, and the marijuana aspect of it was so big and bulky and, and clumsy. To, and There's no hiding this shit. When you go offshore in a boat like ours and get 15 tons of that shit, there's no hiding that shit down below deck. you got to put it up on the, you know. We <laughs> both, <laughs> You're just driving around with a stack. You're this fucked shit's everywhere. Uh, yeah, we're screwed. You're but fucked. The thing about that is, is. If you are looking to search the web privately and not have all these websites track you when you leave, check out my friends over at Privato VPN. Privato is the VPN company that gives you full privacy while losing you no speed, and it allows you to use the VPN on up to 10 different devices at a time. We love that. So if you check out the link in my description, you will go to my landing page with the company, Privato, and you will see a plan there for $4.99 a month. It is the same one I use. You're going to love it, so check it out. 
whether it's be on the boat, on the big boat coming back from the mothership or in the cars driving it from the house that we put it into Miami, there's always a safety valve built into that. How so? Well, if you're offshore like we were running offshore, we always had what we call a chase boat running alongside of us. Now, this is a Scarab or a, or a Chris Craft uh, you know, 313 with enough horsepower to do 70 mile an hour before your ass can even hit the seat. So you would always go out with one of these? We always have a chase boat with us. So you had us. a fourth crewman? Essentially, a fourth crewman. And he would stay right there with us, follow us back in. Now, Captain Billy, the, the captain's job is watch the radar, listen to the radios, and get that boat to shore. Now, if something on the radar picks up, a, if we pick up a target that looks like it's coming where us toward us, the radar goes to 50 miles. Then as it gets closer, you can shrink it down to 30. You can shrink it down to 10 so you get a better view on it. And if it looks like it's coming to us, we just leave that fucking boat in gear and get on that chase boat off into the night we go. Just let, leave the let them fucking there. have it. Give them a payday. Because the, <laughs> the boat wasn't in Billy's name. He wasn't the owner of the boat. Oh, my God. And it's never that way. The owners of the boats or the cars or the whatever's being used are never there. They're always somebody else's. So if... You know, if for a chance we get stopped or, or we're going to get, put, you know, busted or whatever, you know, so which, this boat which never was, happened. This boat was always right next to you. Always there. So we could see if this shit's coming, we'd get off onto that fucking thing off into the And you didn't think that would look a little sketchy on a radar if the but Coast Guard looked at that? It wouldn't see it. They wouldn't see it. It would look boats. like one blip on the radar. Really? Yeah, he's right there. Because he'd stay that close. Right there next to us. And the radar isn't that sophisticated enough to pick up a, a small vessel like that next to a, uh, a target like ours. And you're not, gas isn't a problem because you're going, you know, 30, 60 miles out. So it's nothing crazy. No. Wow. No. And it's all, it's all a time thing. And that safety valve was our chase boat. We had a way out. We're not getting caught with this shit. No fucking way. We're gone. We're off in the night. Now let's talk about the other end, though, where they take it to Miami. Okay. In the cars, because right. you said there's a, f- a safety valve there too. Yeah. yeah. But wh- how would this work? Like they, you said they would take it in in RVs and stuff. Would they? Would it be obvious if I open the door that there's weed oh, all over? Yeah. yeah. Particularly an RV, you get yeah. with it. And I always got a great story about an RV. I had, I had the opportunity. I say opportunity, but I was given the the, the opportunity, or or uh, was asked rather to drive a Winnebago full of this shit. And why were you asked for that one? Well. Because that was never your for job. that one reason. Well, let me let me drop back a little sure. bit and yeah, give you please. give you this driving to Miami scenario. Yep. Now this all takes place during the day. These cars are backing up to this house during the broad daylight. Starts as soon as the sun comes up. Load that bucker, kick it on the bumper, and off it goes. Now these people and the drivers are hired by whoever the owner of the car, and um. They would drive. They would know where to go in Miami, and typically it would be somewhere in western side of Miami, off of Chrome Avenue, somewhere around um, um, Kendall or someplace like that. How long does it drive across U.S. One hundred and twenty miles. So they got to drive, call it two and a half, three hours, right? In an RV, right? So if an RV, a car, or a truck, or van, or whatever they got, and they go to this, go to a pre-designated spot, which is typically a a plaza of some kind like that, where there's a lot of people shopping and a lot of cars in the parking lot and shit like that. And they would get out, they would park their vehicle, get out and go window shop. And we would have one of our people with the Cuban counterparts that owned the material. We never owned the shit. We were called, we were what the government called service providers. (laughs) We were getting paid just to bring the shit to them and put it on their doorstep. You were the logistics guys. So we created at that time what what the uh, law enforcement now calls a dead drop. 
That's our guy mm. who parks in the parking lot. He gets out and goes in window shops. And our guy says, that's ours. That's our car. That's our truck. Another That's, guy who's in Cuban the Cuban would get in it, go take it and empty it and bring it back. Empty. So he'd take it somewhere else. Take it somewhere else and unload it, bring so it you back. never knew where it was. We never knew where it was in the, in the Miami, and the guys in Miami never knew where it was coming from in Everglades. So that was a bit of a, a safety valve in itself. Now, what was what was this? You had another safety valve, though. Yeah. Like you would just get out of the car. Well, well that and the fact that we... Um, typically had hired anywhere from eight to ten spotters, we called them. They're paid five grand a day just to drive from Everglades to that plaza and back. In In front of the cars. In staggered positions. No, all over the road, everywhere. To see where the cops are and stuff. Well, no. We already had, we had somebody else knew that. So what were they doing? If there was the uh, Marine Patrol, um, Sheriff's Department, there was a sheriff and two deputies in Everglades. That was it. Yeah. So this is what the spotters and were And there for. were um, Everglades National Park Rangers. There were um, Highway Patrol. Yeah. And um, when you get south like that, those those um, departments kind of thin out a little bit. They've got maybe one or two Highway Patrol that patrol that area like that. We have a guy sitting outside their house watching. We know where they are. We know they're watching home. the sheriffs. And we the have patrolmen. guys tailing the the highway patrol, so oh we know God. exactly where they are. Because there's not, there's literally like not many at all. There's not hundreds of you know guys out there that are doing these rounds. There's so many people to pay here. You're paying all these guys five grand <laughs> to watch. That's oh my why God. it's such. It was so lucrative. So you knew. We knew where everybody was. It wasn't that nerve wracking. And then. you know, even even sometimes in this little sidebar, the the Marine Patrol guys in in Everglades, there was only two of them: one worked day shift, one worked night shift, and then they would transfer back and forth. Well, depending on who was working night shift for the first those two days or that night or whatever, we would begin calling him about a, a three or four days ahead of time at night, saying. You know, there's some strange stuff going on over here. There's like boats going around the on the river without lights and whatever. And he'd go run and check it out in the middle of the night. He, ah, fuck, there's nothing going on. He'd go back home. We'd run his ass ragged for two or three nights like that. Where if he got a call, he'd say, ah, he wouldn't even it's leave the fucking good. house because he's oh been done. God. You know, but we got a guy sitting out there watching the house. If he leaves, there's all these people have a we have a what we call a two meter radio. They have a five-digit combination on the top of them that everybody knows the number of. And every couple of hours, we'd switch to a different number. How totally long? unscannable. We had hundreds of these radios. And everybody long, had one. How long did it take you to learn like all this, all these details? Years. Okay. Because my first experience, like I said, was just going offshore. All I knew was freighters all right. and unloading. So you make, it, it only, like, I know you're not, but like... It makes it sound like you knew this in like three days. Like, oh yeah, we had a radio guy over there. We got this. Oh, you know, Frank Frank rides down the road all day, checks out all these people. Right. It's like such a it's no, like a community. This is an accumulation of, of wealth of knowledge over a period of years of being wow. involved in this industry as a kid growing up in that, you know, and and um when it came to like um the Winnebago, like we said, you know, you don't take that thing to a plaza because, I mean, you can smell this fucking thing if you get within saying. 30, 40 feet of it, right? And it stands out. It's an RV. So just for just to give you an, an idea about how things changed for me, but serendipitously and, and unbeknownst to myself, was that because of the dead drop scenario, none of our crew and the guys and anybody in Miami running this shit ever saw the other Cubans in, in Miami. Could never identify them because they never saw them. Your spotter saw them. Or no, the guy who we would never, point out that's ours. Oh, 
Well, yeah, he knew this one he, guy. Right. Okay. Those they were only introduced to this one guy. That's but you're window guy. shopping, so you don't even know what's These happening. These other guys are window shopping. They don't care as long as yeah. they go back to the vehicle and it's empty. Well, take it back and load it. If there's time to do another run, you yeah. know. Well, um, that's why nobody knew anybody. Deniability. Right. Only people that knew who the Cubans were and who the honchos were that owned the shit were the adults. One of the five brothers or whoever else job it was, these were the visible characters. These they were the, the guys ones that, that went were, and shook hands and kissed babies. They're the ones that yeah. made the deals and worked us people. Right? And we, like I said I, earlier, I don't care whose job it was. It was never my, any of my concern about whose job it was as long as you shed that paper bag at me. You know, it's all cool. Well, when it came time that in this scenario of having worked 28 nights in a row one month, and some of the guys, you know, when I was putting this together, some of the guys would have said it was more nights than that, but I left it at 28 nights. And these were the nights we're doing that. That 15 tons I did as a kid, that first job, I never saw a load that small after that. <laughs> that was considered a small job. Now we're into the 25, the 30 ton. And one night we did 55 tons. Just to see if we could do it. I mean, it wasn't about money anymore. Is the boat sinking? Almost every fucking house on the island was stuffed full of pot. With, Is the you know. boat sinking? Well, when you take when you go on take on something like that, two or three of the, our size boats would go out, Got get it. loaded. Okay. Each of them so get loaded and bring it all in at once, and then just start throwing it into houses, man, and sealing it up, you know, like that. Well. It was such a large amount that um, a couple of days prior to that, I happened to, you know, we'd, we'd worked a few nights and we were off a couple of nights. Because you can't, like I said, you can't work every night, dude. It's just. But you did 28 nights in a row. Yeah, well, it wasn't us every night. It was our crew worked two, three nights and then another crew, these three, oh, everybody, so overall, even the shore crew guys, you know. Yeah. That's how half the town gets involved with it, because you right. can't keep working. I mean, you're talking about moving anywhere from twice to three times a night, anywhere from 800 to 1,000 70-pound or so bales. You can't work guys like that every night. You, how, you burn them out, you kill them, man. How many total years again did you do this? I did it from 79 to 89. Okay. Ten years. So for those ten years, what was the longest time you went in between trips? I don't know, maybe three, four days. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a kind of a thing, even with the you know the short crew and people like that. So so busy. No Jimmy, Teddy, and Willie, you guys work tonight, and then yeah. you take tomorrow night off, and we'll let these guys work. You know, and it was we were just passing out around the work. Everybody's making money. Oh my god! But you get a respite in in the meantime. You know, so one day on my day off, um, Daryl approaches me and and my buddy Jimmy, and they said he hands us a chainsaw and a wrecking bar, and he points to this brand new Winnebago. And this I is mean, the head brother who runs one all of the head, stuff. one yeah. of the five brothers, and uh, and this thing probably had a hundred miles on it. It was brand new, <laughs> and he said, "I want you to go into this thing and gut it out, strip every fucking thing in there." from the windows down <laughs> we even took the seats out of this fucking thing because if you look up at if you look at it you see the curtains and the cabinets and shit like that yeah. but if you got up and down below it was nothing that's in there. where the party is so um they take airbags and put them in the springs and inflate them so the this thing's not sparking the fucking highway when they take it to miami because oh they put over eleven thousand pounds of shit in this thing wait, wait, wait where do they put the airbags in the springs 
down below so the, the shocks so and the springs. The physics so makes the car. Oh my you god! You tighten the springs up so it doesn't squat when you put this shit yeah. in. It. Then when you get it to wherever you unload it, you shh, let the air out of it so it rides <laughs> like a you know like it should when it's coming back. Well, we stripped this fucking thing out, and he even took the seats, the captain's chairs, and shit out of it. And when they loaded it, they had to pull one out so the guy could sit there between the bales and <laughs> drive the fucking thing. <laughs> Swear to God. So a um, couple nights uh. later, we do this 55-ton job. They load this fucking Winnebago up. So the next day, you know, I'm all, I worked that night. I made 75 grand that night just huh. running offshore and coming back. You know, Good night. So I'm walking up to one of the houses. I mean, we had like every island house on the island was stuffed full of shit at this point. So I walked up to the house, just, you know, kind of see what's going on, you know, what's happening, like that kind of shit. And there's Daryl standing there and he goes, Timmy, come here. He says, I got a favor I need to ask of you. He said, I see that Winnebago there. He says, I need somebody that, that I trust that you know, will drive this thing to Miami and stay there all day till the load's done coming that day. But you can't go to the plaza. You got to go right to the house. Wherever they're taking this shit, you got to go straight to that house because, like I said, you get anywhere close to this fucking thing, you can smell it, right? And he needed somebody he trusted because I was going to that house, first of all, and I was staying there all day till the jobs, till the, till the vehicles quit coming mm-hmm. so I could bring a carload of cash back to him that night. And so the Cubans were okay with this? Well, yeah. They yeah. had to be. Because normally, the, again, if I like, was that sent was the there the to spotter. do that, as trusted by them to do that, they trusted me to do that. So only rare people would get to do that. Basically. I was the only one that ever did that. Because that was Other the only 55-ton the... night we ever did. So know? this was a very rare... Very, it was a very rare scenario that this had taken place. Because it just it seemed, because now you know where that is. You know what I mean? Like, you right. know where that is. And the whole That's point why was they he had blind somebody, deniability. Somebody he could trust. That's why he needed somebody he could trust. But I'm saying on the Cubans' end, their whole doing that at the plaza, meeting you with the spotter, was so you never knew where they were. But now right. one of you, well, right. I guess the brothers may have known too. They all knew that. The, yeah. the older generation knew that because they were making the deals with these guys. Right. So if they sent me over there... To do that, that meant that there was a there were no trust issues. That I was rock solid guys, right. the right one chosen to do this. I'm just thinking out loud though. That it doesn't mean necessarily that they made the deals at their at the place where they stored all the stuff. They could go to a restaurant. They could go to a safe house. They could go so you know what I mean. Exactly. So, exactly. But but you were going to be going into the actual place. So right. this is like, I'm surprised was, they agreed to that. It was a it was a big responsibility. In hindsight, it was a huge responsibility for me to take on something like that. And I really didn't want to do it because, you know, I just made 75 grand. He says, I'll give you 35 grand. Just drive it over there. It's a two-hour drive, two-hour and a half drive, and just stay there and do it, blah, blah, blah. So how old are you now? 22, 23. So this is only like a year into you doing this. A couple of years into it. Okay, got it. And uh, so I get in this goddamn behemoth, man, and... And I didn't like it at all, but I knew there were spotters out there. And all the drivers are, are, are instructed as to how, you know, how to proceed should you get pulled over or, or it looks like you're going to get stopped. You know, who cares who it's by? It's, it's not important it's who it's by. It's, yeah. Right. Well, you have a two-meter radio at your disposal. And every, there's, we got a hundred of these things or better. Everybody that's working has one because communication in, in an organization such as this is, is key. So if it looks like the car driver is going to get stopped or whatever like that, and a lot of the cars and the trucks and the vans that we were using had the Reese hitches in them. They had the, the uh, uh, pickup truck low-slung Reese hitch that goes 
down and up as the ball on yep, it. Yep. Well, you pull those out and turn it over where it goes over and up like this. And you stop. If you get stopped, the first thing you do is tell them you're getting stopped so they can call the owner of the vehicle. And he can call the law and say, hey, dude, I just looked out and noticed my shit. Somebody stole my fucking, <laughs> you know. And he reports it stolen or even the boat. If a boat gets stopped, they report uh, it stolen and they'll eventually get it back. Because <laughs> that relieves them of any responsibility for what that thing's been involved in if they reported oh, it stolen. There's another little trick that was that was integrated into this whole thing. Not only that, the drivers are told, to, okay, wait for whoever stopped you to, to get out of the vehicle and get between you and your vehicle. Throw that fucking thing in reverse and stomp on it. Now your car doesn't weigh a ton. It weighs two tons or whatever. And you smash the holy living fuck out of the front <laughs> end of his car. And he ain't going anywhere. He's going to be sitting there with his shit steaming all over the highway, right? What if you don't? Sto- what if it like bounces back and you don't totally total it, though? And he can get in there. Well, you make sure you hit him hard <laughs> enough. You, know? you make absolutely no doubt that he ain't fucking going anywhere, man. And But you're not uh, going to out. You, you can outrun him. But you're not going to outrun the radio. Right. The the trick is to get out of his sight. And one of the spotters that's driving and already knows that you're in trouble will stop. You get in and you go. You're gone. You're out of there. They can have that fucking shit. The owner's going to get his truck back. And if the spotter's not there? Spotters are always there. But if they're not? Always there. Well, then he keeps driving until one of them has a chance to catch up with him. Because, like I said, law enforcement in those days was very far and few between. It wasn't like there was going to be a cop there in 10 minutes. You know, you had some time. And because of the staggered formation in which these spotters are running, there's always going to be somebody within a couple minutes of you. <sighs> on a 120-mile road. Stop it dead in the middle of the fucking road. Leave it. Get out of it. Get in that car and go home. <laughs> Throw on the flashers, right? Yeah, you got to be, re- be respectful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Watch out for the other guy. <laughs> you know, but... Um, well, that's a fingerprint, actually. You can't do that. Well, are you are you wearing gloves while you're doing this? No, because none of us had ever been fingerprinted. So what the fuck's good is it? Oh, I guess that's true. But some of them that were, and the guys that were unloading, you know, loading the vehicles would close them with their trunks with their elbows <laughs> like that, and then kick the bumper. They wouldn't even touch that fucking car, you know, regardless. I'd be wearing like the like the thick leather gloves. I wouldn't fuck around. <laughs> but um, yeah, so during that day, I got to know who was in that house. You know, that that day I drove that Winnebago and parked Oh, yeah. It. So you didn't get popped. You drive it across. I get it all the way across, and I get out. The minute I get out, they start opening the cellar door to this place, and they start unloading it like this. And you so went and had lunch with I went Zelda. in, and I'm... Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. So, yeah, no, I go in, and these guys are, you know, they're playing poker, and they're drinking, and whatever like that. I played a little poker, but I didn't drink, you know, and they're doing rails. I mean, they got a big sack of Coke all over the fucking house, right? So... um. I stayed sober. I stayed, I stayed straight. But the the whole day of being there, I got to know a couple of the, yeah. these guys, you know, like that. So ultimately when, you know, the shit came down in 1983 and then again in 1984, and they wound up taking the adults and the other guys that were doing these and giving us all the work. Like they the did brothers. A pretty thorough job. The brothers, yeah. Um, nobody, they didn't know anybody except they knew Timmy and they saw, and they knew my face. It took them a little over three weeks, they said, to find me. And they, and, and the I, Cubans didn't the know Cubans, The Cubans. Okay, well, because because of our drop scenario, nobody ever knew anybody other than the older generations, and they are on their way to prison. But now they knew your face. Right. And there's no work going on because these guys are not there to make the deals to put us to work. Mm. So 
this guy Jorge George that I met in that house, he he said he scoured the fucking Naples and in and Everglades for me for almost you know four weeks to try to find me. And I one day I get a on my door, I open up, there's fucking George standing there. The Cuban who you met. The Cuban. Okay. Now I, I all right, I was confused for a second. You're saying that when the brothers like Daryl and them Darryl got and, wiped up, now there's no deal. So the Cubans are like, where'd the gringos go? Now they're like, right. wait, we knew that one gringo who came here. Let's go across the state Let's and go, go find him. Let's go see what's up with that. How can we get in contact with you know whoever else is involved in this thing? Now, how did this happen? How did the brothers get caught? Because that's what you're talking about right now, 1983, 1984. Right. Just they, uh, the government had at that time uh, had infiltrated Everglades with a guy and his wife who had lived there for several years before, you know anything was ever done about this. Mm. So they kind of embedded themselves into it. They didn't know, they never saw what was going on, but sitting at the tiki bar and, you know, just being around eventually, you know, who's who, you know, I mean, come on. I mean, we're talking about 500 people in this town and half the town's involved, but somebody's going to, you know, eventually somebody's going to show, you know, whether they want it or not. Well, they had enough information, having had these, this guy and his wife embedded for several years or so in Everglades, that they had enough to indict them on. So when they took those people away, the work quit. That's when George winds up finding me, he knocks on my door, I open the door, and he goes, Timmy! Dude, he says, I said, George, what the fuck, man? He says, man, we got work to do. He says, the shit's backing up. Can you do this? And I just went, yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> you know, because... I didn't give it a second thought, you know, because we were actually the infrastructure, all of us younger guys. So you just went from, like, prime deckhand to godfather. I went right on to and making the deals with some Cubans in Miami, and now I'm the guy that's flying to Colombia and to Jamaica, to Central America. Holy shit. Because of, and I only, want, I only knew two guys in Miami. They hooked me up with Carlito and Leo, and I named them in my book. And um, where, are they, are, where are they today? They're in my, I have no idea. I don't care. they wound up being after you know digging into my own past they wound up being two soldiers of Grisaldo Blanco's and word happened to get around all over the Caribbean of people that were involved in this business whether it was cocaine or or pot and Noriega found out about it about how 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 the shit was coming in and how how easy it seemed he was the president of Panama he was the president of Panama at that time I wound up working with him three times well, whoa, 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 okay. All right, all right, all right. Let's, let's, yeah, so here, let, we're, let, we're branching let's, off into yeah, another. No, 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 no. Let's, <laughs> let, let, let's step back for a second. So you become the godfather yeah. at like 24, 25. Well, keep in mind now, you know. Um, the brothers are in jail, I didn't right? do this alone. I'm just a facilitator. There's yes. hundreds of other people involved in this. But I'm not the, I'm not the only guy. Okay? But now you're the guy. Like, but you're now the I'm guy making running. deals of my own. Yeah. Right. Oh, exactly. on your own. On so, my own. But the other people, they're still going to be doing the stash house stuff. So you're, oh, you're, yeah. fe- you're the hand that feeds We're back now. to work again. And yeah. the brothers are in prison. Right. And okay. like I said, even when I was doing my thing as a kid and growing up in the industry as I did, I didn't care or even know whose job it was. It wasn't my job to know who it was. I didn't right. care. And that scenario spilled over onto me. Out of the hundreds of people in Southwest Florida that were pumping bales in those days, very few of them even know who's in control of the shit. Yeah. Only a handful of guys ever knew that it was me. But, you know, you do it long enough and eventually, you know, it will get around, around like that. But it um, so it kind of permeated the industry a little bit like that, you know. So George Jorge knocks on your door. You start making these deals. Right. And now, like, 
when's the first time you're going down to Colombia? How does that or Cuba, wherever? Well, like, how's that come together? Yeah. So I get introduced to Calito and Leo, and they said, you know, let's let's do a test run. Let's do you know, fifteen tons. Let's do a small one like that. And I had to get with several of the older generations, whether they were they were from Everglades or Goodland or Marco or wherever the fuck they were from. I'll never say. And I had questions about, you know, how much do I charge? <laughs> Where do I go? Because I always knew the other end of it. I didn't know there. You knew the paper with the with the money. I knew it. the paper bag on yeah. the table kind of shit and scenario, but I didn't know the other workings of it, the upper echelon aspect of it. Now and you had to go to graduate school. It taught me that. He yeah. told me, and and I inherited these connections from them because they're one, you know, their shit's backing up over there too, mm. you know, wherever the fuck. I've been to Jamaica. I've been to Central America. I've been to Venezuela. I've been to South America. I mean, Carlito and Leo had a corporate Lear jet mm. at my disposal. At your disposal? That I would fly anywhere in the fuck I wanted to in it. From what airport? From Miami. So you drive over to Miami and they just I drive to Miami, hop on. on the jet, and I could fly to, say I was flying to Columbia. That's a five-hour trip. All right. I want to make sure I follow and people out there are following too because there's a lot sure. of moving I mean, pieces. It, yeah, because there's, there's a lot. There is a lot. These two guys, soldiers of Griselda that you later found out. You didn't Carly even know Carlito and Leo. Right. Yeah. Then they were nice guys. They weren't like holding a machete up to your neck? No. All right, cool. So, no, none of that shit. Nice guys. Because, you know, we'll call it what it is. Let me just do a sidebar real yeah, quick. Yeah. The reason for that is because they can't control this. Yeah, you the, can't the, come the into terrain. town and figure yeah, this out. This is generations of fucking doing here. You just don't come in and take over something like this. So they needed us. Sure. You're not going to so, stick a gun in the guy's face that you need. But they're, they were Cubans right. working for Griselda. And you're talking about all these other places, though, too. Colombia, Venezuela. These are the sources where I get the material. Depending on who so the Cubans were working with them, right? Okay. Well, no, no. I work with Carlito and Leo. Yes, they had any one of the cocaine hundreds of cocaine cowboys in Miami, or that wanted to get into the pot industry or the pot business, would give them the money, give it to me. I would buy whatever you want. You want a Jamaican? You want South? You want Panama Red? You want? Colombian, what do you want? I so could go get it. You're controlling the freighter now that you guys. Have I have the Caribbean connections. They don't. Oh, because you have the connections because of the senior people you the, went and talked to. Exactly because so, of the third two oh, generations shit. before me doing this, and the generations of families in Jamaica and South America and Central America that they worked with were all generational. So the Cuba got it. All right, now Cubans I like you know the Cubans were just relying. They're on They're ordering people. up. Yes, they're calling and ordering. There you go. The people on top are then calling you guys in to connect it where they send it right. from, and now you're going to be the guy that's actually at the top of that chain to figuring out where it's coming. Now I'm going to go buy the shit, and I'm going to get it weighed and send something to go get it. And hopefully not a freighter with cows that you have to put at the bottom <laughs> of the fucking Gulf of Mexico. But I fly down to <laughs> Colombia this first time. And I meet the boss. Wait, who, which which boss? I won't say. He was uh, he was the um, he was one of the main characters in in northern Colombia at that in those days, whose range went between Santa Marta and Cartagena in the northern coast of Colombia on the on the in the lowland side of it, where the Colombian red was grown. Mm. If you wanted gold in Punta Roja or something like that, there was a higher there was a strain in the highlands inland. You go by plane to get that shit. You don't get boatloads of that shit because you can't, you're going to truck it, you know, 100, 200 miles through the jungle to get it to the coastline. Mm -hmm. uh, plus the, in, the, the, the Colombian gold in the, in the Punta Roja was more potent, so they commanded a higher price. 
Mm. So you could haul less of it and gain as you know a significant profit enough for that for you know like six thousand pounds. That's right. as much as you can get on a DC three. That's it, six thousand pounds. So at one hundred and seventy five dollars a pound, I'll do your job for you, and I'll get whatever it is you want for it, and I'll put it on your doorstep for one hundred and seventy five dollars a pound. Give your money, give their money to me. I don't want to meet anybody else but you two, Carlito and Leo. Don't. Uh, <laughs> Don't bother. Mm. I'll work through you, and you handle whatever your part, your people want. I'll give it to you, and you deal with it like that. Now, if I do one or two jobs, you know, while I'm waiting for the first load to get paid for, I'll do maybe one or two more. Now I'm in the hole. Now they're in the hole for me for like you know fifteen, twenty million or so. And now you're handling you're handling the right. top end of the payments. Now how this works is, and we're gonna us as the service providers are guaranteed to get paid. And the reason How for that, that regardless of what happens, and the reason that is, is is, is the scenario I'm about to un- okay. unfold for you. If you owe me, say I do a, a 40 tons for you, and just, I mean, I'm not going to do the math in my head, it's, it's fucking stupid, but say you owe me $10 million or $15 million, I'll send all this shit to you into Miami except for $15 million worth of it. Because I paid $10 a pound for it in Colombia. I get 30,000 pounds of shit for 300 grand. $10. And between 8 to 15 days, depending on any unforeseen weather patterns coming up through the Caribbean or whatever, that's how long it takes to get from South America to southwest Florida. I've turned that $300,000 into 10 million or 15 million. Because I've taken $10 a pound shit. Now it's worth 500 a pound when I drop it in Miami. I don't know why Wall Street wasn't investing in this. It's a great so business. If you owe me fifteen million dollars, I take fifteen million dollars of that shit of yours and put it in Naples or in Golden Gate and send the rest of it to you. Hmm. So when you start selling off that shit, you give me a million, two million dollars, I'll send two million dollars or a million dollars worth of your shit to you. Oh, you get you the give whole me ransom. all my money, I'll give you all your shit back. Because if you lose your shit in Miami, we didn't risk our fucking asses to not get paid. Yeah. I could sell that shit and, uh, you know, with a phone call and, and we get paid. So we're always guaranteed to get paid in that. This is what this, I'm pointing back at the picture on here. This is why you had them buy the balls. Yeah, exactly. Because they, they like, can't come in here and do they this. They can't do this without you. So you, this is what I'm saying. You could, you guys had the leverage to, as, you know, the gringos over here and sit, who aren't carrying guns or anything, you guys are just right. normal people hauling pot. To insist I never on this. saw a gun. The only time I ever saw they a gun. They can't do shit about it. Carl, Carl, uh, uh, Leo. Of the Carleto and Leo. Yeah. Twi- yes. uh, um, partners. Leo was always uh, walked around like Magnum PI with a flower shirt on and shit like that. You know, and he had a pistol always stuck in front of his pants. That's the only time I ever saw anybody carrying a gun. And you guys never carried nothing? Never. The only time I ever picked up a gun was just by happenstance and by chance, and I was, wasn't was forced to be in, in any way, but I felt obligated that I was, and everybody else was picking one up. It was the first time I went to Colombia and met the boss on this first run for Caleto and Leo for 30,000 pounds. I flew down there. take about five hours to fly down to Colombia in a jet. And we're flying out over the jungle in a sea of green, and then you see this little strip out of the middle of fucking nowhere, and that's the landing strip we're going to land on. You know, in the middle of all of this, fly right over the trees and drop it down and land on this little airstrip. How long? 
I don't know, maybe a hundred yards or so. And how big? How big is the yards? The, the it's, jet? A, it's a it's a small Lear, a small business Lear. It's still tight. maybe a twelve passenger jet. Yeah, it's tight. Yeah, and it's a, and it's a dirt runway. What's, very, the, what's very... the pilot saying? Like, oh, you coming down here for vacation? <laughs> <laughs> he was their guy. I, you know, fuck him. Got it. You got know. it. They they trust him. Hola, adios. That's it. We're good. Yeah, because you know? it was all a matter of trust in those days. Yeah. And a simple fact that if, you know, you fuck this up, your shit just doesn't happen anymore, mm-hmm. you know? And with us, you're almost guaranteed you're going to get your shit just because of the, what you're seeing right here, you know? Um, I never lost a load. Let's just put it that way. I was never involved with anybody that did. And there were guys that, you know, we like I said, we weren't the only pot haulers. I mean, there was so much work for everybody to do that there were five crews up and down Southwest Florida in those days. And there's, like I said, 50 to 70 people on a crew, guys and gals. And, you know, we're unloading this shit offshore. Like, it was a, they're out there like a parking lot. You know, yeah. it was fucking ridiculous. And um, so once you land on, on the plane, when you go to meet this guy, like, how quick are you in and out? What happens? I'll spend the day. Because I'll fly over, I'll drive to Miami in the wee hours of the morning, get on the plane, take a five-hour trip, get to Columbia about 10 o'clock in the morning. 11 o'clock in the morning. Spend the whole day there. Doing what? Just chilling? Drinking coffee? No. No. I meet the boss, and the first time out and meeting this guy, um, we didn't meet him the minute we got there. My, I took a, um, um, a Cuban buddy of mine with me to translate, because this guy doesn't speak a lick of fucking English. None of them do. So I got to know what's the fuck, you know? So you I, still didn't speak I take Spanish? my buddy Ruben with me. No. To translate, and they bring us to the house, and we land the jet, we get in the, uh, the Bronco, and we drive to the house, and flying in, we could see this thing, this big mansion on the side of the mountain that was built by his father, was handed down to him by his father. His father mm. ran all the growers, there's many, uh, pretty much all the growers between, like I said, Cartagena and Santa Marta, which included the, the Bronquia Peninsula and Bronquia City, almost the entire northern coast of Colombia. they taking growers or bringing in their shit from these growers and they're processing it and bailing it and packaging it and stacking it up. And when we got, got to the house, um, that next morning or that, that earlier that afternoon, we meet the boss, you know, and, and, uh, he comes busting through the door and it's this little, I mean, it's, I say little, this stubby Cuban or South American looking dude with a hair, black hair, greased back mm-hmm. like this. And, he comes walking in like this, and I noticed this. He's got um, um, army fatigues on, with the with the um, pouched pockets and shit, and he's got a you know gun belt on. He's got the leather boots on. He's got a t shirt on that has a smiley face on the front of it, and underneath it it says in Spanish, "Have a nice day." Right? <laughs> Some so breaking walked, bad shit. He right here. walks past us like this, and I see the back of his shirt, that same smiley face with a smoking bullet hole on its in its head, and it says. Or else, <laughs> and I'll always stick nice in my to brain. It'll always stick in my brain and seeing this fucker come through the door. Right? Oh man! And it's just though, how you doing? Blah blah blah. Introducing it, and we got right to it. He says, "I guess let's go see what you're here to see." So he opens opens the door, grabs an AK on the way out the front door, hmm. down to the Bronco, and gets in. His buddy grabs an AK. Ruben grabs an AK and I grabbed one. <laughs> Everybody's grabbing a gun. Is that the first gun you ever have? Ever. An ever. AK. Only, ever and only. 
Oh my god! What, what are you? So, are you like? Are you like? Fuck! Is this gonna go off? Yeah, like, like what the fuck is going on, man? You know, like so <laughs> we sitting there, like yeah, yeah, no problem. We get in this fucking Bronco and we're driving. You know, it's just like five minutes go by and we pull off into this. And you know, we get out in this. And as soon as uh, his uh, um, the boss's partner opened the door, it smacked me in the face. That smell of pot and burlap. Mm. Oh God! I know. I love that smell. If they make a cologne out of it, dude, I'm buying it. It was so like crazy. And, You're hitting them like, and can, we, can we I, smoke some? I, I get out and and I'm pushing aside these big old leathery leaves. I'm going through the jungle, and all of a sudden I'm looking at this mountain of shit stacked up that looked like an Incan ruin, and it was probably 20 feet wide, maybe 12 feet high, and about 50 feet into the jungle like that. There's a stack going this way, stack this way, stack going that way, stack going that way, and because of the different growers he was pulling from, were different potencies of weed being. Yeah, you know, being bailed up, so I would walk down between these mountains of fucking shit with the boss and his people, and using his pipe, and he'd give me a a piece of bamboo about six feet long, with a pipe on the end of it, cut like a um, syringe, and I could stick the bales like this and pull some shit out and use his pipe. And I'm like, <laughs> dude, give me how many of those you got? You know. <laughs> Kick them down here, and these guys are up on the stack, and they're kicking this shit down, and I'm spraying a mark on them. And there's a reason for that too, because you're spraying. What do you mean you're spraying a mark? Well, on them? so when it finally gets to us, when I send somebody to come and get it, and it gets to us offshore, and we go to unload the boat, we know that we got the right boat uh-huh. because there have been times where we've unloaded a boat, and they were like, "Dude, that was our job." Well, okay, well then go unload this one. That's ours. Oh my god, we unloaded the wrong boat. <laughs> It was just, disorganized on the high seas. It was so fucking. It was out of control, man. I mean, it was just like I said. Then they were parked like the parking lot out there. So we, we knew when it got there that that mark meant that was my shit that I that I found that I looked at. How old are you on this first trip to Columbia? Um, twenty three. You're still twenty four. This is happening so fast. <laughs> you came down there to crab a year and a half ago. Now you're talking with Diego, this, whoever the fuck down in this, Columbia. This was in late nineteen eighty four after the Operation Everglades two took place. All right, so a few years in. This is like eighty four. So, yeah. You're, yeah, you're maybe like 25, 26. Either way, it's still like, <laughs> fuck, man. Like, was there a point where where you, like, just had a quiet moment to yourself, like, in your house or whatever? Just, like, this escalated quickly? Or, like, should I stop doing this? Yeah, or? no, no. There were times when I, you know, could, you know, wasn't killing myself, you know, because there were a lot of people that I entrusted to, you mm-hmm. know, to take care of a lot of different things and delegate, Right. I mean, it's, I can't micromanage a job like that. I can't micromanage three loads coming in the same night on three different crews. I arranged right. for it. Ultimately, I'm going to get the majority of the pay for it, but I still have to pay the crews out of whatever, you know, or whatever I'm getting paid. Mm. But um, that being said, um, there was never any reflection upon what it was I was doing. And I was just like, quit. I'm not quit. I've got enough money. It wasn't like that. It was, I mean, it was just... We worked under the assumption that we were never, it was never ending. You never consider at that time that there's ever going to be come an end to it, you know. And, and people always ask me, like, weren't you afraid? Weren't you scared of going to Columbia and meeting these people and, you know, going to Jamaica or wherever the fuck I was going? I'm like, no. <laughs> you probably didn't think any, like, it's... It never, it never occurred to me to be scared about it. And when I think back on some of the shit that I've done now, yeah. my ass goes, 
like a cigar cutter, man. You could, <laughs> you could cut a fucking end of a cigar off with my butthole, you know? Well, it's also, I'm trying to think about this. This is pre-internet. It's 1980s. There's not movies about all these guys. It's just like, ah, oh, this is business. That's, that's it. This is a nice man it. down in Columbia. We're going to have a coffee, smoke some weed, and make a deal. Right. And that's exactly wow. all it was, was business. And as a business, you know, doing a service as we were providing... If there was any part of that pot-hauling scenario that I gave to you that I could cut out of the picture, for example, I had one of my dearest friends um, um, was um, had was a, was a Everglades National Park ranger. He was one of my crew, right? And um, he's the one that turned me on to this counter-surveillance technology expert in Miami that we were buying all this crazy shit. Did from. he ever get caught? No, no. And I never say his name. I never will. Got it. But um, being that there was another gentleman who was also, you know, very high up in the, in the political arena in, in those days mm. um, who was privy. I would stash a lot of the money that I was uh, pot that I was keeping in lieu of payment at his house. <laughs> <laughs> the politician. Yeah, at his house. <laughs> and um, I, I one night I, I just cut almost every, cut everybody oh. out of the picture except for the load boat bringing it from the mothership. I brought him right into town. Two boats, 47,000 pounds of Colombian fucking weed, oh right God. to the dock at the Everglades National Park Ranger Station in the middle of town and unloaded it into two tractor trailer trucks right there in the parking lot and drove them straight out of town into Miami. And I cut all the people that in between out. The Wait, little so boats. Not even, not even going and picking up? Oh, yeah. Well, I'll do the mothership, pick it up. Okay, bring that was it, still happening. Bring this okay. through the deep pass, which is. I thought, I thought you were bringing the full boat in there no. for a second. I'm like, Jesus <laughs> Christ. No, 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 no. We would di- I would have that part of it covered. You know, go out and get it. Right. Those guys would never come any further than we could coax right. them to get in. Right. Because right. they'd done their part. So the two mother boats, or the other boats, like the one I worked on when I was, you know, younger, bring them through the deep water pass, the main pass into Everglades, because you could bring a, you know, a heavy boat like that through the pass because it was deeper there. Mm bring them right up to the dock them right at the national park ranger station and unloaded them into tractor trailers and drove it right straight out of town and i cut out the boats i cut out the house the bail handlers the drivers and all those people i would have had to pay i kept that now these because this is business these are the residents of the town though doesn't matter well now are they pissed off oh why no. not now they're not making any money doesn't matter they're gonna make money tomorrow night <laughs> oh, because this would just be for like one thing here. This and is there. one job yeah. that I managed to be able to work it out with these guys that were in in these positions in order to do this, you know. And one of the guys on the crew, actually, our Everglades crew's father was one of the sheriff deputies in town. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, there isn't anybody that we didn't know, you know. So I could do something like this and, and pull it off. And, and like I said, this is business. In whatever scenario I could eliminate from the whole picture. I keep whatever I would have to pay them, so I make two and a half million dollars, rather than pay out that two and a half million dollars to those guys. How much money are you making a month right now? Oh God! Well, when I'm working the whole crew or whatever like that, and everybody's part of the whole, you know, from A to Z, I keep whatever's left over, and anywhere's between a hundred, a million, a one point two million a month, a job, a night. In a month, dude. We did 28 jobs in a month one time. Where is Remember this? all this money? <laughs> Where uh, is all this money? Where did you bury it? 
Well, see, there's another there's, <laughs> there's another myth too about the burying of the shit. And I've been asked that many times. Where do you bury your money? Fuck, you don't bury money. Uh, money molds and mildews and, and rots. Listen, I got a few friends up in North Jersey with vowels at the end of their name. They would argue that point. They definitely bury some money. <laughs> well, you know what? Good for them. You know, God bless their ass if they can remember where they buried all that shit. You yeah, know, they we're got, talking about they got the coordinates. You know. <laughs> I don't want to get too far off track, but you know, I had a, I had a, um, one of those um, burying the money things uh, stories given to me by Craig, the younger of the five Daniels brothers. One time, he said he had a PVC tube that he he put like 150 grand of hundreds in, and then capped both ends of it and took it out and, and paced off of this stream, paced over this way, and buried the fucking thing. And about three weeks later, went out there to find it, and he's looking all around. He can't find the fucking thing. Well, yeah, I mean, I so he goes and gets Daryl, his older brother, and come out and help him look for the fucking thing, and because you know all the growth and the shit and I got, and then he this finally, is amateur hour coordinates, yeah. man, latitude, longitude. <laughs> come on. <laughs> so he's thinking, did maybe did somebody fucking maybe watch me or follow me and see me because he, he can't find it. So they go back and they get a piece of rebar. Now they're out there juking in the ground, and, you know, <laughs> instead of digging holes and shit. And he's like fucking sweat, and he says fucking shit, and he sits down, and leans against a tree, puts that bar on his knees like this, and he's like this, and he looks and he he notices this little curly cue on the end of the, of the rebar. It's black, muddy. Breaks it off like that, and it's white. PVC. Holy fucking shit! There it is. <laughs> there it is, right there. <laughs> he found it. But he never buried it again because oh of that. God. And I never buried money because of that. Because if you start burying this shit, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, in the amounts of money that we're getting paid and the millions and, you know, tens of millions of dollars, ultimately, that's getting paid out, some of this money doesn't even come unbanded. You know, you get um, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars, or a hundred thousand dollars in twenties or in fives. Nobody wanted the fucking fives because... <laughs> You know, when I started doing my shit, we had a money house in Coral Gables in Miami that was just for going and getting paid. And when they sold the shit, the money would come to that house. And they'd have hundreds in this room, hundreds and fifties in that room, twenties in that one, tens in that one, and oh, fives in a six-car garage. Because if it you've ever seen a million dollars in fives, it'll fill this fucking room. Because a five and a hundred weigh the same fucking Well, they thing. all, every bill, no matter what denomination, weighs a gram. Yeah. And in those days, it took us, it took me a little while to figure that out. When I would spend, you know, after we got going, I would find myself, you know, in Miami still counting money when I should have been off to Columbia again, or I should be helping my crew unload, but I'm still counting millions and tens of millions of dollars because now we got jobs that are stacked up and starting right. to get paid for. They're bringing out, you know, Different denominations from each room in the launder basket, setting it in the kitchen, and we're pop the rubber bands and put it in the three money machines going. Yeah, I was going to say it's round the clock, going. and we're ledgering and we're counting and banding and throwing and sitting. In a, and they got to mix it all up because pe they have to get rid of the fives. Well, so you can't take any one denomination. That was yeah. the rule. You had to take so much of each denomination, even the fives. This is something the movies get so fucking wrong because they show everything like the, you just open up a box or like they're they're taking the hundreds yeah. and they hand you a bunch of Benjamin Franklins and it's not like that because you it's not like you can just like walk down to the bank and be like all right I got a thousand fives can you change me on a hundo like exactly it's not like that and it's not like in the movies as you're saying when you see a guy running with a duffel bag or a you know bag full of money 
He's not running and slinging that fucking bag around. That shit's fucking heavy. How much does a million dollars in twenties hundreds weigh? Twenty two point two pounds. Almost a kilo. In hundred dollar bills. Hundred dollar bills. It's a hundred it's twenty two pounds in hundred dollar bills. Hundred and forty pounds. It's a big briefcase. Hundred and forty pounds in twenties. It's a million. <sighs> so that shit weighs. It starts weighing. It starts adding up. And we didn't realize that. Didn't come to that realization until you know, a year or so into this, you know, doing this with Carlito and Leo, and I'm, kept, I'm I'm not being able to get up because now the loads are not pillow bales anymore. They figured it out because we told them, look, the older generation said, look, we're going to handle your shit. You got to get it together down oh, there, Oh, the man. shitty ones that would spill and The stuff. shitty pillow bales. Yeah. Now, they're, now they've learned to compress them. Now, in the early 80s, when the advent of the commercial and household compactors came on the scene, they started taking them down the jungle and putting them on generators. Now they're packing the shit. Now they're coming out all the same size, the same weight, well, they and they're also, easily stackable. They also had to really figure that out when cocaine rose, too, because you can't have powder flying everywhere. No. Yeah. They're, they're hand-pressing those, by yeah. the way. They're using a hand crank to hand so press So they did those. that differently. They did it differently. Ours being bales of weed, throw it in the compact, 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 and then wow. slip that bag into a burlap sack and stitch it shut. Now the now it's more uniformed. Now the loads are getting heavier because they're taking up less room. We're doing more per job, more amount per job, and the cost is, and the pay is getting greater. Can you imagine if you guys took all this time and tried to cure cancer instead? <laughs> no one would be sick. Who knew we were hauling medicine around? <laughs> Just saying, like the yeah. genius, the details of all the little, like all the shit the movies don't make you think about. No. You had to worry about right. all of it. Well, this is a this is a bit of a scenario that most people aren't privy to. That's why I that's why I wrote this. Yeah, let's hold this let's hold this fucker up. This is called Saltwater Cowboy. You put you published this in what 2015? 2015, yeah. It's fantastic. I'm halfway through it right now. I started reading it yesterday. I was thinking, all right, let me get through like three or four chapters, and then that'll be enough for me to start. But then I'm sitting there like two hours later. I'm still reading. I'm like, I gotta put this down. It's too right. good. Phenomenal book. And there's nothing more uh, um, satisfying to an author than to have his work turn out exactly how you intended it. And mm. by moving that prologue scenario from the middle of the book to the front. Is is how I grab you and pull you to the edge of your seat, and then I keep you there until the last word is read. And that's that Cal story. And most of yeah. the 118 reviews that are on Amazon speak the same words. I picked it up and couldn't put it down. Yeah. Well, keep in mind that you know, of course, it takes a literally a village to do to do this. I'm I I don't want to take everything. All the pats on the back myself. I was just one key in the whole scenario of the workings, and I couldn't have done it without these other people. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't, it just couldn't have been done. So I'm not going to toot my horn with that regard. And I'm not going to say that we were the only pot haulers anywhere doing this. I mean, there were pot haulers all over the fucking place. You know, the guys would get together and they'd buy their own loads or whatever. And whether they got it in or got it caught, you know, good for you guys, right. man. You know, yeah. all I'm saying by imparting this story in this book mm -hmm. is I'm telling you how. A group of individuals were able to integrate it into a way of life spanning over 40 years and three generations and running those these southern waters down here in the Caribbean with impunity. And you were, and that's it. We, we keep forgetting that. But as you said at the beginning, you were just a kid at that point from the Midwest, from Wisconsin, coming into town. You weren't born there. You weren't from there. You I didn't come working. there with any aspirations of Nothing. doing that. It just... Like like I said, it's a, it's a Forrest Gump tale. I just tripped over one thing and into the next. And it's not like... 
this isn't like this dark underworld. It's no, no, not no, no, like no, no. that. It's a very, it's like a way of life. And they're just, they're moving this plant. We deal with some people. We don't ask questions about them. They deal with their shit. But right. like, this is it. You well, know? This was family. Yes. It was generational. And like I was saying earlier, and you, you, you're, you know, you're talking about these um, people's um, misguided conceptions about um, dim, dimly lit, smoky back rooms with guns on the tables and a deal being made with, you know, rough guys standing on the perimeter in the dark and the shadows like that and a little light over the table. It, nothing could be further from the fucking truth, yeah. man. I've made $100 million deals standing on a street corner in downtown Miami in front of a Cuban cafe, dunking Cuban bread into Bustero, Cuban coffee, and doing a $100 million deal with a handshake. <laughs> That's how it was done. Were you still living in a trailer? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. You don't change your lifestyle. So where, where, seriously, though, back to the money, though, where, where are you putting all this money? <sighs> like, what was the spending like? Because um, there's no way you're spending all of it. No. It's, yeah. Um, and that's the reason why it, you know, the fives in particular, and some of the, sometimes the tens get mildew and mold, you know, moldy and mildewed and shit like that, you know, because they're banded in clumps of, you know, fifty thousand or hundred, ten thousand or whatever, depending on the denomination. Those never get broken from that. They get paid, and then he pays with that. Mm. Money, by its very nature, is designed to be distributed. Yes, used. Yes, fingerprints all over it. And they don't use, banks don't use rubber bands. They use paper bands. So the bands fuck with it. The rubber, the bacteria on the money fucks with the rubber bands and it turns them to gel and they start falling the fuck apart. Really? That's why, that's why banks are, use, um, you know, temperature controlled vaults and paper. Yeah. Crappings. Yeah, You'll never a pain see, in the ass. But bank yeah. will never hand you a stack of money with a rubber band around it for that reason i used to because i was a caddy growing up so i was always in cash business i didn't have a credit card till i was 23 i don't think like i just always had a lot of cash on me and i never had a wallet until i was also 23 and came in the real world my boss looked at me funny but i would keep my money just wrapped in a rubber band with the cards <laughs> with, with like a debit card in the middle you know what i was using as a wallet what was that a shaving kit a shaving kit <laughs> Yeah, big shaving kit oh with money God. in it. You're carrying around like a fucking pocketbook? <laughs> that was my book? fucking wallet. Yeah. Oh, my God. But as far as the spending goes, you know, like I said earlier, we were taught, you know, by the older generations how to spend money and be able to spend money without having anything to show for it. Because even today, if you spend more than $10,000 at any yes. one place, you're required to fill out a, what's called a CTR, a cash transaction report. In cash, right? In, in cash. Right. And they, then, they, then they in turn report that to the Internal Revenue Service. That's the, that's the law. Yes. Well, so 9999 you're good. Right. If we didn't actually know the people that I was buying from, I bought cars and boats and shit and paid cash and all kinds of shit for them from people that I knew that owned the dealerships or owned the, you know, whatever like that. Um, I bought a chase boat. $90,000, one of those fast go-fast boats did, that rides along offshore. Did you do it in tranches? I did it in, I come back and I come back each day with $9,900, $9,900 until it's paid off. Then I go off with my boat. So that was an agreed to under the table. It was, an, it was agreed yeah. to by the owner of the marina, who was actually the owner of all the Nissan dealerships in Southwest Florida at that time. <laughs> so I could pull in and buy a truck and say, thanks, and drive off with the fucker, you know. He knows he's going to get paid. He knows you're good for it. Oh, fuck yeah. yeah. I, you know, we go into town. I go into town with a buddy of mine in this piece of shit truck, pickup truck and say, dude, oh, dude. 
people in here. <laughs> Pull out with a, give him a brand new truck, and we go to the club. You know, good day for him. <laughs> oh my god! You know, god. but um, you know, and 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 um, as far as burying and securing your money, and you know, and like that, we would uh, from time to time have a couple of the girls on the island, my buddy's girlfriend, and and another gal on the island. We'd take um, paper bags that we would have a certain amount in them written on the bag and our name on it. They would take these bags to Miami to a Cuban gold dealer and buy gold. At that time, they had what they called a uh, troy-ounce Cougaran, South African Cougaran, gold coin. Mm. Changed the money for gold coins. Now you can do any fucking thing you want with them. In my case, I had you know four, four or five, I can't remember right off now, big money chests full of these coins. And I would have a chain wrapped to it, and I'd just throw it off the dock next to our boat right there in town. And if I ever needed money, I'd dive out in there and follow that chain and open the box and take a handful of coins out and go to town. <laughs> you know, there was all my cash laying at the bottom of the fucking bay. <laughs> there any still down there? No. <laughs> no. No, but it's just stupid shit like that. You know, I'm, um, I'm going into town one day to, you know, to grocery shop because any significant grocery buying had to be done in town because we're 30 miles from any, you know, Publix or Winn-Dixie or whatever was that happening at that time. Oh, this is like that far away from shit? 30 miles from Naples. We're out in the middle of fucking Everglades, dude. So you went, there was, they had a local grocery store, but if you wanted to buy stock up and, you know, get, you know, Groceries. I didn't realize it was like that far from civilization. You take a take your ride into town and put your shit in a cooler and buy your groceries and drive back. Well, mm. I'm on my way into town one day and I passed the Chevy dealership and my I had a Cobra, a Mustang Cobra, seventy six, and I see this awesome looking Corvette in, in the in the Chevy lot. I pulled in there and I'm checking it out. And it turns out that it, the owner of the dealerships that was his son's car. He just turned it in and, and got something new, but he had it all nice flared and ground effect and tinted, you know, tinted uh, windows and big tires and shit. And it was cool ass looking car. And I said, mm. I don't want that bucker. <laughs> so I wound up buying that I'm car. I'm going to have it. <laughs> but I got my, I got my, um, my Cobra still. So I'm on the phone. I'm going to call a couple of buddies to come up and get my car, drive it back for me so I can take my Corvette home. While I'm on the phone, I'm you know I'm looking out through the window at the lot, and they they were selling Jeeps too. Oh, you want those too. ragtop Jeeps, brand new ragtop Jeeps for eighty eighty seven ninety five or some shit under ten grand for a brand new Jeep. So I'm gonna he answered the phone and said, "Hey, dude, grab these, grab you know Johnny and Teddy and Tommy and you know whoever, and a, six of them shows up, <laughs> and you know we all bought Jeeps. Good day for the dealership. We left our shit. They loved you." <laughs> We left our car sitting in the dealership parking lot, and we took these Jeeps out to a place called Bad Luck Prairie, and we had one of the most spectacular fucking demolition derbies you'd ever seen in your life with these ducking Jeeps, man. We were just fucking you flying them, them jumping them, and the crashing them, them, banging into one another, just beating the fuck out of these Jeeps, because they, you know, they cost less than 10, 10 grand. No, we go nothing. have a day of it, you know, go buy some Jeeps and go fuck them up. So I've got mine, and I got my dingbat girlfriend, blonde bartender girlfriend sitting next to me and she sees the roll bar and she's thinking you can roll this thing it's got a roll bar oh no and she's screaming roll it roll oh, it roll no. so i just crank that bucker over and i doosh, 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 <laughs> turn it over i'm spitting sand i got sand in my face and my eyes and shit you know i just told her that fucking jeep and we did that all afternoon till we had like one that was, would get us back into town and we 
drive this fucker back and <laughs> pull it onto the lot, and just walk away from it, get in our cars and go home. They're coming back. What happened? <laughs> no, never even got questioned about it. Oh, no. man. But um, that's what how you life. spend money and not have anything to show for it. That's still, know? but here's the thing. You just took a full day of that, right? And you spent. Only spent eight grand. Yeah, that's what, but per car. So let's say you bought like four of them. You, you know, bought seven of them. Okay, 70 grand. You made at this point. You made two hundred thousand dollars the night before. Just saying. That's only. That's you're not making a dent. Right. So where's shit. the other hundred thirty k? Well, then you go to the club the next that night and you spend you know hundred grand and you take the club over. Well, now you still have thirty k left. In, you go into my no. Well, you go into Miami and hit any one of those clubs from South Beach to Miami, and we would go go down the line. I would take a couple five of us. would take a couple hundred grand each. We had a million bucks between five guys. And take on a club, walk in and say, "Take the tab here. Here's, here's two hundred grand. Shit. Let me know when that's gone, if it's gone." So you're not like, was your goal just to, like spend the money as fast as you got it? Pretty much. It was it was fun. It was wow. something to do. You know, it was my twenty five years old. Every intention of taking a, a you know a million dollars between us to Miami, hundred, two hundred, three hundred grand a piece. With the uh, with the idea of trying to come home with like eleven dollars and change, <laughs> and just you know do whatever you want, but still like you you're working two to four nights a week. There's no way you could even go that many nights at the club. Like it's still coming as much right. as you're trying to spend it, dude. I'm putting it in. I, uh, now I'm buying houses. Okay, I bought a, my first house. I bought from a Cuban partner of mine. And you're Rudy, name. Ruben, the guy I took Ruben. The, hey, Ruben. the guy I took to Columbia. He was selling his house in in a place called Golden Gates. So he's buying a new one. Where is that? Where is that relative? Just, to just um, well, it's north in Naples. Okay, I'm living in a south side and outskirts of Naples at this time. Are you buying it in your name? No. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Actually, I am. But the mortgage was the money was lent to me by a, a, a fictitious individual, Matt from, Cox from Panama. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you get that, Matt? He's throwing you under the bus, dude. <laughs> well, listen, no, listen, my... listen, 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 listen. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Red is going to buy this house. Don't, don't worry about it. I, I, Tim, Tim, shut the fuck up. I got it. I got right, it. <laughs> right, right, right. No, the attorney that I had who was introduced to me by Ruben, he was a shady guy. He knew what the fuck, you know, yeah. the jig was up, you know. Uh, an attorney that was shady? He would help me. He would write these false mortgages for me and, and, and um, make them a matter of record in a courthouse. I borrowed this money from a guy named Manuel Cuimba, who lives in Panama, and we're such dear friends that I just pay him every now and then when I can when I have money to send to him. You know, it was no big deal. You so know, you that weren't worried about the government finding their way into that somehow. Well, eventually they did. I mean, ultimately, yeah. you know, I wasn't going to get away with that scenario, but that's what I was told at that time. So he was an attorney, so it it worked for a number of years. You know, but that being said. I would take, you know, this house that I bought, I paid 75 grand cash for it to, from Ruben. I just, here you go, go get your house, like that. And I moved right in, and I'm starting to put this boxes and bags of this money in the, in the attic. Well, I go up there one day and pull the thing down and climb up in the attic, and I see I had $100,000 in hundreds, maybe 150 grand in hundreds, chewed up by mice. Oh, no. They made a cool little condo out of this shit, man. And they didn't just, <laughs> I mean, it, it wasn't like you could just take it out and tape it back together. I mean, they minced this fucking shit into confetti. Jesus. And I look and I start laughing. I'm, <laughs> I'm laughing until I about pissed myself because that's this is the funniest fucking shit. This is a cool little house they made. I just grabbed it like this and tossed it back in with the rest of the insulation and set the other bag down on top of it. Oh, my God. 
But it started to stack up that way. You and know? you're just storing it in houses. I had to buy the house because the condominium that I had at that time, I started making money. All the air conditioning vents had so much money in it, the air wouldn't come out. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I had to buy a house in order to put... You know, start putting the money, and then I bought another house. And I had another how many one. houses did you buy? At I the had peak? I had six altogether. I Jesus had four of them Christ. were were around the Caribbean. Like I I said earlier, that I never went back to when I got busted. You'd store money in the Caribbean. Yeah. Yeah. Do, was there? Did you have to put your name on those ones too? No, same same scenario. They were written up by you know. So so they hold on a minute. You could virtually do anything you want in the Caribbean in those days. That's what I'm you know. saying. They, Even in Pan, particularly in Panama, because Noriega was a crooked. Dirty dealing bastard, son of a bitch. Yeah, know? what was that? We we skipped out on Noriega. You started to explain about that. When was the first time you came into official contact with him, and how did that go down? I never actually met him face to face. He was privy to what was going on through through Blanco. I can only assume because Carlito and Leo came to me with a sixty thousand pound job. I don't care. I never ever once cared whose fucking money you're giving me. It's not my concern. That's yours. I don't give a fuck. Don't introduce me. I don't want to know. They don't want to know. And the 60,000-pound job. Now, um, I bought the 60,000-pound from my from my connection to the boss down in Columbia. And um, um, he had told me at one point in time, he said... Um, because we were, you know, discussing about where to put money and in, in where could you put money in offshore bank accounts and like in the Cayman Islands or in, in Panama in particular. And if you remember in the movie Blow, where Johnny, uh, where George and uh, Diego or Carlos take their money to Panama and they put thirty million each in the bank and they give, he says, "I give you thirty million, you give me this little book." Remember that part? Yeah. Well, you also remember the part where he goes back after he discovers Norman's K and he goes back to Panama to get his money and the guy said, "Well, you should have called because." You know, the government of Panama has appropriated your funds. He told me, the boss man told me, don't ever give that fucking guy your money because he'll take it. Don't ever do business with him that way. Mm. When he knew ultimately after the first job whose shit I was buying was for Noriega just to make money. So the first 60000 and that's an interesting tale right there. Well, well let's hear it. What happened was, uh, um, again, I'm not privy to who owns it because I don't care. I'm just going to, I'm just a middle guy. I'm just going to go buy it and do what I need to do, you know, do my job. Mm-hmm. And um, so I said, uh, 60,000 pounds is a big job, you know, that's, um, and that's 30 tons. And um, I said, um, typically we would never approach a boat twice. We would get it all in one night. You know, in the earlier days, you could do something like that with a boat that had, you know, 300 plus thousand pounds on it. You could go out there night after night until it's empty, and then he could take off and like that. But as now the years as the years going by, we don't want him sitting there. We don't yeah. want him loaded like this. And I said, "Well, show me." And they were going to use their own boat. Now there was two different ways to do this. I do the whole scenario: go point it, pick it out, and buy it, and shit, and send a boat and get it and put it on your doorstep for one hundred and seventy-five dollars a pound. Now, if you wanted me to purchase your material for you, and you want to send your boat to get it and bring it to me, that's one hundred and forty-five dollars a pound. Mm. So you're getting a bit of a deal. But most of the time, they always option for you to do the whole thing. Well, in this case, they had a boat of their own they wanted to use. It was a Panamanian registered vessel. And I said, well, show me what the vessel looks like. Give me a drawing, a schematic, or something. You know, what's the what's the hole look like? Well, in this particular ship, there was a uh, um, forward and behind the forecastle, which is the forward section, bow section, hold. It's called the forecastle. Mm-hmm. There was a... Um, access to the bilge for maintenance 
compartment down there was big enough where you could put 30, half a load, 30,000 pounds of shit. Oh, it was huge. Right. It was, this was a big size yeah. boat. Well, in one, the maintenance uh, closet that takes you down to this um, maintenance ha- maintenance compartment had a floor hatch that you go like this and pick up like that, and you could access that. And I said, well, don't press the bales any bigger, then we'll go down that fucking hole. Put half of it down in there, shut that door, and the door leading into that compartment was a watertight door. Mm. Every door or doors that lead to the bilge of the boat are watertight. And if you've ever seen, and I know you've seen a, a, a like on a submarine or a, a boat where they open the door and they step over yep. the threshold, the yep. thresholds are about 18 inches tall. Shit. So when you close that hatch inside that room, you could put, it only stuck up four inches above the deck. I said, well, put all that first 30,000 down in there. And the room wasn't even maybe a quarter size of this room right here. It was all the bigger that maintenance compartment was. Wow. And I said, put five inches of concrete in there and cover that hatch up and throw that buckets and mops and sponges and rags and all that shit back in there and shut that door and leave it in there. And we'll come the first night and get what you've got in the main ship's hold. We'll get that the first night. And then when we come back the next night, when we radio you were coming, you jackhammer that hatch open and start bringing that second load out of there, right? So we get in and get the first half in there, and we're, you know, we're buckled down for the night. We're sending the next day, we're sending this shit. And I get word that the, you know, the the boat's been seized by the Coast Guard Mm. because it got approached and boarded as a matter of course. But the residue and debris from the first 30,000 pounds was all over the still inside that oh, boat. Oh, they hadn't cleaned it. So they took the crew off the boat and brought the boat into the Tampa Bay, into the ports, into the port in Tampa. Now, were you worried about being burned? Well, what happened was after they got that boat, it still had that second 30,000 pounds in it. They, they, didn't, have... they didn't know it was there. Oh, shit. Cause it was... It's sealed over, and this residue from the other... First 30,000 hit any kind of a smell or any kind of, they couldn't detect anything. But they couldn't take a dog on that boat. They couldn't take it on there. They all have the whole fucking boat smelled like pot. Oh, my God. Because of the debris and the the residue from the first 30,000. Well, they get this boat in the next night. I guess here here comes George again. He says, dude. We got to go get it. What happened? He said, do you know whose shit that was? I said, of course not. Who the fuck he says that was that was a um, a presidente's. I said the general. He said general fucking president. Who? He said Noriega. And I went. My knees went. <laughs> I said what? No shit. But that's and, not your fault that it got caught. No, no, no. And there, you know, and, and and again, in those offshore scenarios and, and going, you know, to South America yeah, and whatnot for other people's problem. shit. Whoever the owner of the shit is that we're going to purchase for, always had one of their people on that boat. Riding with my guys. So he could count the pieces as they come on board with my Mm -hmm. guy counting them. When he got to shore and it got to Miami, they count them again. So when the counts match up, everything's cool. If the boat gets boarded on the high seas and gets taken over and taken, he goes with it. So he can come back and tell them exactly what happened to that fucking shit. What do you mean he goes with it? He rides with the boat. If the boat gets busted, he's busted with the crew and the Cuban guy's guy they put on the boat goes to jail with everybody right, else right okay so he can tell them afterwards exactly what took place we didn't throw it we didn't take it we didn't lose it the government somebody took it 
the you know we got busted. Which then exonerates everybody. Which is which is all cool because yeah, they, that was our safety valve built into that end of it. Mm. So always somebody that belongs to the load goes with it. Always right. one guy, paid like soldier. That. Right. It. So in this case, he comes to me and says, tells me who's shit it is. I'm like, what the fuck? It's like, okay, well, you know what? So what? He made more money on that first thirty thousand, you know, at ten dollars a pound. That you know. And and I'll do the math for you on that in a minute to explain why there's no violence at that level. Absolutely none, because there doesn't have to be. Um, what happened was the the boat was held in in um, confiscation for three and a half, almost four months, till the you know until the trials and all that stuff got taken you know got taken place. But being a Panamanian registered vessel, they couldn't keep it mm. because the owner of the vessel wasn't on it. The captain says, on a two and a single sideband radio back to Panama, and they reported it to the to the stolen to the yeah the, to the maritime authorities. The boat was hijacked at sea and stolen. Oh, so man. They, they get it back. So the boat gets deported back to Panama. It's a whole crew of pirates, man. <laughs> they came too fast. Check this out, though. The boat gets deported from Tampa back to Panama with the weed turned over with the weed still in it. Oh, man. Turned over to the owner of the boat. Uh-huh. Noriega put another crew on it and sent it back. <laughs> we jackhammered that shit and got the rest of his shit out of that same boat. <laughs> and about, about four weeks later, George shows up to my house again with a handwritten note from Noriega. Said, no. Yeah. A hand- handwritten note. Do you still have that? No, dude. I wish I had kept it. Fuck, man. You know, so I, I mean, what an just, idiot. Why would he ever do that? You just don't keep shit like that, you know? <laughs> and all it said was... Timoteo. Gracias. In Spanish. <laughs> How in the fuck did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. So, and I did two more jobs after that. For and he him. didn't let you open up a nice little bank for yourself <laughs> over there for that? I still wasn't going to give him my shit, you know, give, give him the opportunity. He would have took it. I mean, he was just a piece of shit, you know. I mean, had I not known who the guy was or who I was working for originally, like I never knew all these other scenarios who the shit belonged to, and I just didn't care. So what? What the fuck? But when it came to, say, you losing a job, losing a load, which a lot of the guys did, hence the, coined the term square grouper. Yep. Now, a square grouper isn't yeah, just an average, is isn't average bale of pot. It's a pot of, bale of pot floating in the water. So what would? So if you guys couldn't pick up the full thing from a freighter boat, the boat would then throw over what? What was left. And it was called, you called a square grouper. Square grouper. Or if another pothauler from wherever and whoever was doing their thing and they happened to just get spooked for some whatever reason, they start throwing their shit only to find out there's no problem. And we go out, we went out one morning and this has happened I don't know how many times. We were going out to pull our trap lines one morning and, you know. Square grouper, baby. Captain, he. He's kicking the bunk going, there's, there's bales out there, boy. <laughs> we get up, I put the boots on and run out onto the deck, and, and the sun's just coming up, and the slick, calm glass, you know, water's like glass. And, and they're okay sitting as on the water? As far as you can fucking see, there's bales floating in the water. They're okay floating on the water? <laughs> well, they'll float for a time being until they get saturated and sink. I mean, like, the weed is okay. Well, most of it, majority of it, like I said, depending on how well it's packaged. Mm. Some are floating low, some are floating high. And now it's the professional, pet, the pillow shit's but, done. But it's it's free. Yeah. It's whoever gets it, owns it. So we're plowing on our way through the, to go pull, to go work. <laughs> we're plowing through these fucking things. And all of a sudden he's like, 
we're using our catch poles and we're driving around grabbing the highest ones that are floating because those are the better ones, yeah. right? And we start loading the deck with these fucking things. And all of a sudden, I don't know, we must have had 100 pieces on there or something. And these are 25 grand each. And so sometimes people would go out there if they found out there were square grouper and you'd just be like, it's somewhere by that latitude, longitude. Dude. Free man's game. Captain, get on the radio. Square grouper, square grouper. <laughs> Anybody in town with a radio in a boat, dude. <laughs> They're gone. <laughs> so we're throwing this shit on the boat like it was Christmas. And all of a sudden, the you know Captain Billy wasn't on. It was his dad running the boat. He says, that's enough. He says, no, 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 no more. Don't take any more. He says, we can't take as much as the little boat coming out to get it from us can hold. So we had to throw some of them back in the water. And Billy, the owner of the boat, the Captain Billy, he comes out with his little other boat, and we throw it on him, and he takes it into the into the 10,000 Islands and stashes it somewhere in the woods, and we go on about our day. We head on down and start pulling traps. Here's another question, then. Like, Billy had been doing this for a long time. When, when Jorge ran out of the brothers because they went to prison, why didn't they go to, like, the captain? He had seniority over He didn't you. know him. Oh, because they knew your Nobody fit. That's knew the only those. reason. No, only, the only people face. they knew were one of the five brothers. That was that was the most lucrative RV drive of all time. <laughs> yep. That's wow. how I stumbled onto this. If it wasn't for that day of me driving that shit, those Cuban people wouldn't have known who to, who to go find. And you're looking at Red going, I'm the captain now. <laughs> well, we didn't communicate after that. You know, we kind of, because after this happened, mm. Billy kind of took a you know, back, step back and got out of the business because he Amen. was never implicated. He was never, never went to prison for any of this stuff. God bless Fucking him. Fucking Billy. Besides, two years later, the statute of limitations had run out, had long since run out, and he wouldn't have had, he never had anything to worry about anyways after two years. Oh, he's the dude, he's the dude with the movie. He's the dude that sailed <laughs> off into the sunset. He's, the cops can drive by his fucking mansions right now. No, they can't do fuck all about it. Right. Genius. Well, except for finding this shit, right? So, he takes it, stashes it. We go about our day pulling traps, and all, all that throughout that morning, little boats are coming up to us. And, Where's the shit at? <laughs> it's over there, about four miles, dude. That way, he said, just keep running. You'll find it. Oh he said, God. you better get to it because it's been there a while, right? So everybody's getting free fucking money. Yeah, it's a seven figure day. My cut out of what we took was three hundred and fifty grand. Yep. I made $300,000 that day, and I didn't do shit but pull some bales out of water. And this happened now and then. And it's nobody's going to come looking for it. Nobody cares because those fuckers, whoever they were, threw it. That's the square grouper. That's what a square grouper is. Square fucking grouper. <laughs> what a world, man. So, but you're st- it's just crazy that like you're still doing all this while you're now making the deals and flying other like you're still the crab guy going out there grabbing and collecting. Well this was a little bit before time before that time Yeah yeah that story know? was so, what I'm saying like all this like still being out on the boat doing the whole deal making the deals now down in Colombia making right? deals with Noriate like you're adding all these layers to it and is there I mean I know there weren't a lot of cops down there and you had a couple paid off but is there at some point you're thinking like all right they're going to start they're going to start poking around on this No it never occurred to us Never occurred to you. And, you know, along with, um, you know, the amounts of money to be made was the simple fact that the sentences that were being given out in those days were pre-mandatory minimum. Mm. Okay. The mandatory minimum um, sentencing guidelines across the federal board didn't happen until September 1st, 1987. Prior to that, War the, the magistrates had discretion on, the, on to their sentencing. And that's why when the five brothers came before the magistrate in Miami and he's 
they're being arraigned and he's reading off the list of seizures or they're being sentenced and he's reading off their list of seizures. How were they caught again? I don't know if you said that. They embedded a man and a woman and a wife in town for two years. For right, two years, right. In the bar and whatever. And accumulating they, right. this, this wealth of knowledge about, you know, who might be who and who might be when. That's when they started focusing on certain individuals. Who and embedded them? Putting the government. But, but which agency? Who knows? Okay. So they could have been DEA, could have been customs, could have been, you know, CIA, could have been FBI, could have been Secret Service. I mean, every branch of law enforcement that that there is was involved in the the operation that took everybody down. So even though this had all happened, you still didn't think. We kept going. And you're like, yeah. Well, they took all the adults and everybody was making the shit. The infrastructure, the the guys that were doing the work was us kids. These adults aren't out there humping. I know, but. 70 pound bales, you know, 800 to 1,000 of them two and three times a night. You think the adults are doing that shit? You didn't think think the government was going to be like, okay, well, who's taking over now? Because now that, now basically this little island, now there's a reason to have a spotlight on it because they're like, well, we just got some big ones from right there. They thought they, 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 they considered the slate wiped pretty much. (laughs) They figured they got a handle on it, but they didn't have any clue to the enormity. Yeah. Clearly, the 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 sheer volume of shit that was going on, they hadn't have a clue. So what was they it? had a bit of a hint because when the five brothers became were going to sentencing, the judge he's reading off their list of seizures. Yeah, this that. Now they've got you know a Netherlands Antilles holding company worth millions of dollars in cash and properties around the Caribbean. Here in the states, they had houses, motels, timeshares, um, apartments, uh, boats, trucks. Airplanes. Government took all of it. Daryl had an airplane that he didn't even have a pilot's license. He just paid some guy to show him how to fly the <laughs> fucking thing. <laughs> you know, he's out there having a ball, right? And so, but it was all taken, right? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. The government and took they all of seized it. on top of all of that. They seized five hundred and eighty thousand pounds of weed. Half a million pounds. So the five so brothers are in court. Who's for that? got that laying around? Well, these guys do. Five brothers. <laughs> we do on a little island. So the judge is reading this. And he, th- he throws his glasses down, and he's, they're standing here in front of him on the bench. <laughs> and he says, you know, he was at his wit's end. He literally looks at them all and says, I have absolutely no idea how to sentence people like you. <laughs> <laughs> he says, there are, no, there are no precedents. There are no guidelines by which to sentence people like you, he says. And he looks at Craig, who's the younger of the five brothers, the youngest of them all. And Craig had been busted before. So this would be his second time around. He had oh, he'd gone, been busted for he had gone to prison for, for potholing before. Really? Yeah. He did his 18 months or 12 months or whatever the fuck it was and got out and got <laughs> home. Came right back. Started yeah. working again. That's just how it was. Yeah. Well, Craig agreed. Yes, sir. I'm, I understand. I'm, this is my second time. So the judge, you know, he's rifling through the paperwork and shit like this. And he says, looks at this, looks at his four brothers and he says, gentlemen, you are now sentenced to, uh, to a federal holding facility, uh, Miami Correctional, for um, a period of 36 months. <laughs> Two and a half years. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. <laughs> Two and five fucking years after all of that shit. And we're flooding North America with weed. Uh, and he turns to Craig and he goes, now remember, Mr. Daniels, this is your second time around. He looks down at his paperwork and shit. And I'm reading transcripts and, and I'm getting Craig's vocalization of how it <laughs> took place, right? And he says, the, the judge fucking looked at him again. He took his glasses off and threw them down on the table. And he says, again, he says, I have absolutely no idea what to do with somebody like you. He says, I have, you know, and he looks him dead in the eye and says, does five years sound like a long time? <laughs> and Craig goes, yes, sir, that sounds like a, like a real long time. Five years. <laughs> 
<laughs> he was out in two. <laughs> and that's when everybody went, and everything stopped, uh, slowed down, and that's when enter, you know, Timmy and George and his buddies he met at the house. That's how I took over. And that's, that's the whole thing. But the violence mean. thing, let's circle back around that. Yeah. And yeah. at that level, and I've always told people this, because again, there's this misguided misunderstanding and misconception about the violence in that sure. industry. Well, at that level, there is no violence. And the reason for that is simply because it's, it's, it's dollars and cents. If I can go to Columbia with $300,000 and I can buy 30,000 pounds of shit for $10 a pound, and in 8 to 14 days, like I said earlier, get that into the United States international territorial waters, now it becomes $500 a pound. Mm. And you're making $15 million off of $300,000, minus my fee for a load that size, which is about $5 million-ish, like that. So they've cleared, they made $10 million. They've cleared $9,700,000 in, in their investment returned, yeah. $10 million. Yeah. So if you take and do the math a little bit further, and you take that 300000 and divide it into 9700000 it comes out to thirty two. 32 is your number. Okay. What that number represents is the number of times I have at my at my disposal to get another load in. I can lose the first 31 loads, but I get the last one in. If I get that 32nd load in, they've still made money. But they would tolerate Because they only paid $10 a pound for it. I know, but still I uh, That's okay. just a, that's All just right. a for instance scenario. It never happened. Right, but I'm also saying like these people in businesses like this like the Colombians like they're greedy. So they want all 32. You know what I mean? Like they they want to get them all. Well, of all course right. they do. So if someone gets two wrong, it's that's been the thing in the drug business. They Pablo right. Escobar was making billions and he still killed people if they did something that's wrong. That's the difference between the cocaine industry and the marijuana industry. Cuz it's just and That's lower. the difference between idiot sons of bitches that want to be that guy. Uh, who are really nobodies that have no family association with any of this. They're not linked to one another. And they've got all their money invested into that pile of cocaine. If you lose it, you're going to pay for that fucking thing. In our case, the numbers tell you that even if we did lose one, it's like, go get another one. Fuck it. They still made fucking money. They still got money to burn. They've got $9,700,000 of free money to go back and spend another three hundred grand to get more shit with. You know? <laughs> But like I said, never lost a load that I never gave them. And what I mean by that is I could take $170,000 of my own money and buy $17,000 worth of fucking weed, 17,000 pounds of weed, put it on an old rickety-ass boat that belonged to some of my friends up in my, um, um, Naples, set it adrift offshore, and have one of them call the law on it. They run out there, score! Everybody's paying attention to that. Well, I moved 60,000 pounds in down here in Everglades. Well, they're all up there fucking around with, a, you know, $170,000. Dude, I've spent that in a bar in a night, <laughs> you know? Just keep them busy with it, you know? That's how that works. It's a numbers game. It's a dollars and cents game when it comes to that. But, of course, we never lose the shit, you know? That's just a scenario by which I can explain to you the significance of what it was with regards to dollars and cents and no violence until I, you know, even if I lost the, all 32 of them, it still was never a big deal because <laughs> go get another one. But, you know, in the scenario like that never took place. We never lost this, lost this shit. All the years that I did it and pot haulers were always losing shit. Like I said, we've stumbled across that shit all the time. You know, the square grouper thing, 
you know, and it happened, you know, it wasn't frequently, but it did happen occasionally from time to time, you know, and that's when all the other, you know, the kids that, you know, didn't work on the big boats offshore where we're only making, you know, 15 grand a night or something like that. That's score, man, you know, because um, there was one uh, one day in particular where um, we found some shit coming in from a day of pulling traps. We found some bales. We must have threw 25 or 30 of them on the back of our boat. Good day. And we're cruising toward home, and we're getting closer to the pass, and we, Captain Bill, uh, Hubert opens the wheelhouse door, and he's got binoculars, and he's looking out the stern like this, and there's a boat coming up our stern. All you could see was the bow of the boat and the, and the wake. Yeah. And he's trying to call whoever might that be, and we're not getting any answer, and it's getting closer, getting closer. And he says, you know, boys, we got to make a decision. Are we going to go in with this shit or just throw it? And it wasn't even worth the risk because of the money we were making, you know, so we just threw it off right there. We go into town, we go back into our dock and we get the, the catch off from the fish house. And we hear in town that, you know, one of the other boats coming back from crabbing found 25 bales. Oh, <laughs> you fuckers, that was our shit, man. You wouldn't talk to us. That was, that was them right there behind us, you know, so we gave our shit to them, you know. And then there was a day where we go out and, you know, and gather up some fucking bales and shit and, and uh, on our own, me and a couple of buddies, you know, and we filled my, uh, my buddy Martin's trailer in a double wide. We filled the, almost the entire trailer knee deep with this shit because we're going to dry yeah. some of it out, right? Yeah. So while uh, we got the fans going and we turned the shit over, we decided we'll go ahead and run off, you know, run out there and see how everybody else is doing because all the, everybody, even the kids, I mean, there's an 18, 19 year old kids out there running around looking for this shit, right? And, so we pull up to one of the outer islands. It's called uh, Rabbit Key, and um, we see two guys, you know, in a little little small boat, nosed up on the beach, and they're you know waving at us like this. We get a little bit closer to them, and you know, this should have been out there for a while now, you know. And they're, they're like, you know, they're yelling, "Where is this fucking shit?" <laughs> and we turn over, looking, and we're laughing at each other, and we say, "Look down at your feet." <laughs> <laughs> the shit had come apart. And the high tide had brought it up on the beach, and tide went out. It left it on a big row, a big ring, all the way around the island of weed. It's not seaweed. Dude, you're standing in it. <laughs> it was everywhere. They started scooping it up off the beach and throwing it in their boat, you know. But you could rinse that stuff and dry it out, and it was, you know, it was still all right. It was seaweed. Everybody knew it, you know. It wasn't fresh like, you know, the stuff you would get out of a bale, but it was still sellable. You weren't going to get top dollar, but it's money, you know. So everybody's out there getting their own little shot of free money, man. <laughs> God damn, man. I mean, the stories, the number of stories you have from this is beyond comprehension. Obviously, I again, I encourage people to actually get your book because there's a million in there. And I'm still like halfway through it. I got more to go. But like, when did this actually start coming down? You said you were doing it for about 10 years before you got arrested. Like, did you see it coming when it happened? And if not, like, how did how did the whole case happen? Right. Yeah. Um. And that is where we will leave this one off for part two next week. If you're watching this podcast in the future, the link is already in the description or the pinned comment. Hope you guys enjoyed Tim. Know you'll enjoy part two. And other than that, you know what it is. Give it a thought. Get back to me. Peace.